This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Wa la'udwana illa ala al-Zalameen. Wa la'aqibatu al-Muttaqeen. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barak ala abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. So I apologize for all the time that it took getting set up. Um, for those of you that are joining online, we prayed Salat al-Dhuhr at one o'clock. Um, so it took us a little bit of time after Salat al-Dhuhr to get set up. We apologize for the technical difficulties. Um, but if you're going to have a baby, you need to be a little bit more patient than that. So if you're going to wait 20 minutes or so, then you need to be able to wait much longer, inshallah. But anyway, so just to introduce this topic, um, alhamdulillah, I'm extremely excited about it. And I have enough material to go until Maghrib time. So I'm going to try to cover as much of it as I can, inshallah, in the short time that we have. Um, but it's a topic that I know that many people would you know, love to see addressed. And the testimony to that is that, we planned this event on Wednesday. Alhamdulillah, we have over 1,300 viewers online. Alhamdulillah. Um, so obviously, it's a topic that doesn't address, get addressed much. And I know that, you know, personally, whenever, um, you know, I, I know a family that that just had a baby, I can expect like 20 text messages of questions on the first day. Um, so Alhamdulillah, this is, a, you know, I'm really excited about doing this uh, this class. Inshallah, I hope it'll be beneficial and it's something that everyone will have to go through in some way at some point in their lives. So even if you yourself are not expecting any children, at least it's good to have this knowledge so that you can coach other people who might be in that, that same situation. And just having, you know, knowledge of this situation is very good. Now, we have two aspects of this. You know, traditionally when the ulama, you know, talked about Anything of fiqh, they also included tazkiyah. Um, a, a lot of times when we talk about fiqh now, it's just halal, haram, sunnah, that's it. We just give al-ahkam al-taklifiyah, we give the ruling on it, and then we just move on. But I really wanted to in- introduce this topic with a lot much more than that. So before we even get to the fiqh aspects, there will be a lot of halal and haram and, and sunnah and taking notes and so on and so forth. But before that, just talking about this topic as a whole, you know, we have to remember that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he encouraged us to have children. So having children is a sunnah. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, you know, have as many children as you can, for I will be proud of your number on the Day of Judgment. Rasulullah sallallahu will boast about the number of Muslims on the Day of Judgment. Now obviously, this ummah is the largest ummah of believers on the Day of Judgment. Out of all of the nations of the Prophets, this ummah will be the largest of them all. And Rasulullah encouraged us. And the Prophet talked about being proud of us on the Day of Judgment, you know, the number that we have. Um, obviously, from the individual perspective, from the virtues of having children, is that it is the greatest investment that you can make. As we know, the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said that, he said to a person, a son, when he was referring to his father, the son was asking his, you know, was asking the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, "What belongs to my parents?" And Rasulullah sallallahu said, "Anta wa maluka li abik al waladu kasbu abi." You and what you've earned belong to your father, and obviously to both of your parents. But it was in the context of the father at that moment. And Rasulullah sallallahu said that the child is the earning of his parent. Right? It, you know, Subhanallah, you work so hard, you toil to raise this child. And because of that, everything that that child does goes to your record. And in fact, all of the actions that the Prophet said continue after we die, being sadaqa jariya, a continuous charity, a righteous child to make dua for us, or a beneficial knowledge, all of them are found within a a child. Because 
for the most part, who's going to make dua for you consistently other than your child? Who's going to give charity on your behalf consistently other than your child? Who's going to spread your beneficial knowledge consistently other than your child? So it's really, you know, it's, it's a worthy investment. And not only that, but in Nawawi rahimahullah, he comments on this beautiful hadith. He says that not only is this limited to the child, but to the entire offspring. Right? So can you imagine that our great, 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 great grandparents, if they were Muslim, and they taught their children how to pray, who taught their children how to pray, who taught their children how to pray, and who taught them la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and the importance of being Muslim, there could be someone hundreds of, you know, that passed away hundreds of years ago that's benefiting from you being here right now for being in a gathering of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the investment continues for a long line and we continue to be a part of the legacy of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is part of the good deeds of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed Ismail alayhi salam so much. Imagine him and his brother Ishaq alayhi salam. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi said, Allah has chosen from the children of Ibrahim, Ismail. Right? Ismail has a higher level than Ishaq. But if you look under Ishaq, you have so many prophets. All of the prophets of Bani Israel. Because Ya'qub alayhi salam is the son of Ishaq. You have the twelve, the twelve sons of Ya'qub, and you have all of the twelve tribes of Israel, and all of the prophets that came from that. And with Ismail alayhi salam, you have this long line going just to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And from Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there is a continuous legacy. So when you invest in something like this, Alhamdulillah, I mean, it's something that that will benefit you not just with your children, but inshallah ta'ala with your grandchildren and their children and so on, so forth. So there's the investment aspect of it, and there's also the aspect of struggle. As Muslims, we like to struggle for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards struggle. We know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards pain. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, He, you know, He, He talks about the mother in particular. Allah describes labor pains. Allah describes the pain at the time of delivery. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the way that the mother would scream, you know, whenever she's delivering. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is, is expressing this to show that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not unaware of your struggle. And the struggle of the parents as a whole, obviously. As Rasulullah said that there is no form of anxiety, nor no form of distress. No form of harm, no form of disease, except that when the believer is struck by it, it expiates a sin. It takes away his sins. So it purifies us. And we know from the famous hadith of Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and some say it's marfu' to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he was asked by a man who carried his mother on his back throughout Hajj, you know, back in those days, before you had the cooling tiles, before you had all of, you know, uh, the, the things that are sprinkling, you know, uh, moisture and things of that sort. Before you had all of that and the five-star hotels that are around, you know, the Kaaba that look like Gotham City. You know, before all of that happened, he was carrying his mother on his back with his feet burning, you know, in, in the heat throughout the entire monastic of Hajj. And he asks, have I repaid her? You know, have I given her, you know, what, what, what I was, have I given her her due? And the answer was, وَلَا بِتَلْقَةٍ وَاحِدَةٍ Not even with one cry at the time of labor. 
You haven't even repaid her for that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who compensates the believer on the day of judgment. So there's from that aspect also. And Rasulullah particularly talking about a woman in her time of pregnancy. Now brothers, we're going to also talk about brothers also. Particularly the mother, because the mother struggles the most. Um, you know, there's an authentic hadith from Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. That Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-mar'atu min hamliha ila wiladiha ila fitamiha. That verily a woman from her pregnancy to the time of her delivery to the time of her weaning fi halati jihadin fi sabilillah. She is in a state of jihad fi sabilillah. She is a, a soldier for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout that entire process. You know, throughout that entire process. And that's why Rasulullah said, if a woman dies before labor, and this is an authentic hadith in Ahmad, if a woman dies before labor, during labor, or during the nifas, she would have died shaheed, she would have died a martyr. And her child will drag her to paradise even by the umbilical cord. She will enter Jannah, she would die a martyr. SubhanAllah, so that's, you know, that's an amazing situation to be in. Obviously it's one that uh, requires you know, much effort and much struggle. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is surely not unaware. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam also expressed that. Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah also said something very beautiful and interesting. He said that and our companions, meaning the scholars, they all used to say that a woman's dua is mustajab at this time, is accepted at this time. You know, because with the, with the greater struggle, the more the dua is accepted. The closer that person is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they struggle. Then there is the reward of sacrificing for your children. Right? We all make sacrifices for our children, brother and sister. Just listen to this beautiful hadith from Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha in Sahih Muslim, where Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says that a poor woman came to me with her two daughters, and I gave her three dates. And she gave each of them a date, and she was about to eat the third one. And then when one of her daughters asked for it, she took that date and she divided it into two and she gave it to her two daughters. So she went hungry while her daughters ate. Now how many times did we, did we sacrifice for our children? You know, there was something that we wanted to do, there was something that we wanted to eat, but as soon as our children put their eyes on it, that was it. Right? It belonged to them. And so Aisha radiallahu anha, she was amazed by this. So she, she told Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam about what she saw. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, حَقَّتْ لَهَا الْجَنَّةِ بِهَذِهِ التَّمْرَةِ Jannah became her right. SubhanAllah, just as the food was the right of the child when they looked, when, when the child looked at the food, Jannah became her right because of that date, because of that one date. So even the sacrifices that you make for your children on a daily basis, especially when they're, when they're at a younger age, you know, the happiness that you would forego sometimes. You know, the, the time that you would rather spend in something else, but the time you sacrifice for them. Don't think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is unaware from them. And that's whether the child is righteous or not. Notice, so Sallallahu didn't talk about whether these two daughters grow up to be, you know, pious Muslims or things of that sort. That's just the sacrifice that every parent will make. Now, if they are righteous, then it goes even further. Right? If they are righteous, then it goes even further. Because then they're your continuous investment. As we said, everything you taught them, the salah that you taught them, it's like someone is praying, it's, it's like someone is praying for you every single time. Right? You are getting the reward of that. Every time they say the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, any ibadah, it is your reward. 
and it benefits you after death um, all the way through, you know, for your grandchildren and so on and so forth. Now, the, the point here is that at what point do you start trying to make your children righteous? And that's the, that's the issue here. Now, there is a reward whether you raise your children righteous or not from the very beginning, the sacrifices you make as parents. There is a reward for that. But at what point do you start caring about the righteousness of your children? That's really something that I wanted to start out with to introduce this topic in the first place. Because that's the point of all this. Learning the sunnahs and things of that sort and learning the fiqh. All of this is to do things that are pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to have the maximum blessing from this, from this effort and from what we go through. Um, and a lot of times people, again, they wait until their children grow up to start worrying about their righteousness, right? And then take him to a shaykh and hope he'll give him the Holy Spirit. You know, put his hand on his head and then all of a sudden he'll start loving Salah and he'll start loving the masjid. And, you know, she'll want to wear not just hijab, she'll want to wear niqab, you know, because she got the Holy Spirit one time, you know, one meeting and alhamdulillah it's all over. And that's, that's such a, a wrong way of thinking. You know, obviously it doesn't make sense. And as much as it doesn't make sense, you know, I've said this in conventions with, with thousands of people. I made that remark and some of the parents are laughing and I'm like, you're guilty of this, you know. I can see you right now. I know what your kids do. You know? You're guilty of this right now. So it's, although, you know, it, it's illogical and it doesn't make sense, un unfortunately some people only react when it comes back to hit them in the face. You know? Whenever they see the consequences of their actions, some people are not proactive, some people are reactive. They wait until their children grow up and their children are telling them to, you know, to, you know, saying bad words to them and telling them to go away and, and shutting the door on them and not giving them the time of day and then questioning Islam and so on and so forth. That's when some parents are like, wow, what have I done with my life? We should not wait for that time. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of perspective on the hadith, for example, where the Messenger wasallam said to raise your children on salah at 7. Make sure your kids are praying at 7. Not just one or two prayers a day. Make sure that they're praying the five daily prayers at 7. Fajr counts too, even on the weekends. At 7 years old, your children should be praying. And Rasulullah said what? And at the age of 10, then you need to discipline them physically. The Prophet was not giving, was not telling the Sahaba, you know, if your kids aren't praying at 10 years old, go smack them around. Actually, the perspective of this hadith is that a lot of people react with the hand in the first place, right? They start slapping right away when their kids aren't praying. You know, that's the way that they start, they start disciplining physically from the first place. And what the Messenger is teaching us is that if for three years, three entire years, every single day, you are ensuring that your children are praying just like you, do you really think that would be necessary at the age of 10? No. Okay? So you start early. And how early do you start? When do you start trying to ensure righteous children? When? Before pregnancy. <laughs> when? Which do Before marriage too. Before that too. <laughs> you ensure, you try to ensure the righteousness of your children even before marriage. The Prophet ﷺ taught us, or Allah teaches us, Ibrahim salam's dua. And Rasulullah used to make this du'a, and he taught us to make this du'a. رَبَّنَا هَبَلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَاتِنَا قُرْوَةَ أَعْيُنْ وَجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا O Allah, grant us from our spouses and our offspring the coolness of our eyes, and make us imams for the muttaqeen, make us leaders of the muttaqeen. So there's that. And you know what else? The way that you treat your parents. That's also a way of ensuring the righteousness of your kids, because what goes around comes around. 
Subhanallah, you know, I see some of the things that, that my daughter does to her. Like, you know, I remember making that same joke or pulling that same thing with my parents. And she's just three and she's already doing this. All right. Some of the things that, that um, my Sunday school kids, before I became imam, my Sunday school students used to do to me. I'd say, I remember playing that same prank when I was in Sunday school. You know, it, it comes back around. SubhanAllah, it does come back around. So the way that you treat your parents, the way that you treat your parents. Now obviously there are exceptions to that. There are exceptions to that. But generally speaking, you will see some of it if you look close enough in the way that you treated your parents, that your children will treat you in the same way. Uh, then, getting married, choosing the right spouse, like some of you talked about. A man came to Ibrahim al-Adham rahimahullah, four-month-old baby, you know, bringing him to the greatest shaykh of the time, right? Go ahead, make dua for him, you know, smack him on the head, whatever it is that you have to do, make him a righteous boy. Rahim al-Adham said, it's too late. So what do you mean it's too late? He said, you should have came to me before you got married. Right? Before you got married. Because the type of spouse that you marry, the type of spouse that you marry will have a lot to do with your children. Now, we, we really underestimate that. And unfortunately, a lot of times, when we're young in particular, we get married for the wrong reasons, or we rush to get married, or we, or we marry the person that excites us most. But we don't realize that this is a contract that you're going to have to deal with. This is the most important decision that you're going to make in your life after your religion. Right? Because it will, you know, subhanAllah, and it's not just a wife, it's a husband too. Having a righteous spouse. When you marry someone who you, who you think is going to be a good father, a good mother, and you think about that before you get married. Right? You can't keep trying, you can't just always try to patch things up afterwards. So looking for those good characteristics, those, and Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, al-Bayhaqir commented on that one. Rasulullah said, if a person comes to you with good religion and good character, said one of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ told us we should look for character too, is because we should want our children to have good character. So I should see things in my prospective spouse that I would like my children to have. The characteristics, I should want my child to have those same attributes and those same characteristics before I get married. Then what comes after that, after choosing the spouse? Even at the time of intimacy, the Prophet ﷺ taught us a dua. Before being intimate every time, Rasulullah said that both of the spouses actually, the husband and the wife should make dua, Allahumma jannib shaytan wa jannibhuma razaqtana. Oh Allah, put the shaytan aside and put him away from anything that you give us as a result of this, any of our offspring. Right? So again, we have Rasulullah wasallam teaching us, even at that moment you're conscious, you're awake, you're thinking of that. You're thinking of your children, right? Because the Muslim, the believer is always proactive. He's always thinking about his future, right? He's, he, he knows the more he does now, the more he'll thank himself later, right? So you, you're making that dua from the very start. And by the way, just to, so you all know, I'm going to be very explicit, especially when we get into 50 issues. So please forgive me from now. We're, gonna, we're going to have to be explicit with some of these things. Next, after that, it's building a strong foundation. This is where this class really comes in, building a strong foundation. By taking the steps to ensure all of the sunnah, okay, all of the sunnahs, while you are pregnant, whenever you're delivering, you know, when you're dealing with an infant, when you build that strong foundation, then inshallah ta'ala, you're not going to have a crooked tree to deal with later on. Right? It's a lot more painful to deal with a crooked tree, but if you grow it right from the start, then inshallah ta'ala, it will grow straighter, okay, and it will be, it will be easier to deal with.
So building that strong foundation. Now, one question that I always get, you know, and subhanAllah, I met, I met someone. Actually, I met a few people that said this. Um, I don't want to have children because the world is full of fasad. It's full of corruption. And I don't want my kid. I don't want to have kids and then they grow up to be atheists or they grow up to be homosexuals or they grow up to be, you know, whatever it is. And I don't want to have to deal with that. So I'm just not going to have kids. Right? I've met many people like that. Okay, just say, I don't want to have kids because of the amount of facade in the world. I don't want to bring them in this world because the day of judgment is in like two years or something. Right? It's, the world's about to end anyway. Right? And imagine if people had that mentality back then. Now, the reason why I address that issue is because do the sins of the child affect the parents? Do the sins of the child affect the parents? Only if they were responsible for that sin. Only if they failed to do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded them to do. Okay, so for example, salah, your kids don't pray and you taught them and you taught them how to pray. You did everything at 7, 10, and then, you know, they're 15 years old or they're grown-ups now and they don't want to pray anymore. That's none of your business. You still get the reward. And in fact, you would get the reward as if they had prayed because you had a good intention. Okay, so the scholars, they say that the only thing the parents are responsible for when the child is in the house and listen closely actually for all of the members of the household. As-salah wal-awra. The covering, right? My child needs to be dressed decently. Whenever you get out, if you decide to do whatever you want, that's your business. Now you don't, you teach tarbiyah again from the very start. You don't come whenever a child becomes a teenager and try to force these things on them. That's where the problem always arises. Okay? You're proactive with these things. Then if they grow up, then you can say, well, Nuh alayhi salam, you know, some people try, I, I call it the Nuh card. Some people try to play the Nuh card, and they did no tarbiyah whatsoever. And you're saying, well, Nuh alayhi salam had a bad son. You did nothing like Nuh alayhi salam. And you're saying that Nuh alayhi salam had a bad son. Imam Malik had a bad son too. But what effort did Nuh put into his child? And what effort did Imam Malik put into his child? Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what effort you put into your child. So at that point, when they grow older and they become badaf and they make their decisions, that is their problem. Okay, it's not your problem. You would not be charged for that. Some also say, well, what if my children grow up and they treat me badly? Right, I put all of this effort into my children, especially we live in a society where the parents are always dumb, right? Even in the cartoons that you watch. Any cartoon that's, that, that show, you know, that, that, that's shown on cable TV today, the parents are the idiots in the, in the cartoon. Right? Go through all of them. Just study them. SubhanAllah. The Simpsons, you know, Family Guy, whatever it is. What, what's, the, what's the latest? American Dad. The, the dad, the mom are always just totally out of it. You're being programmed at that age to know that your parents don't know what they're talking about. So they're not worthy of being honored. SubhanAllah. They're not worthy of being treated that way because your parents are really just unreasonable. You, you wonder where they get that from. Right, so unfortunately we have to counter that influence. And a lot of times it hurts people when, my, when their children treat them bad. You know, I put everything. You know, sometimes I look at my three-year-old and I'm serious, I'm talking to her and I'm like, you better not grow up to be a brat. <laughs> you know, you better not grow up to talk back to me. You know, because they don't know the love that you put into them, right? They don't know the mercy that you showed to them, all the sacrifices that you made. And of course it goes to the hadith that we mentioned earlier, that the believer is not tried by fatigue or illness or, or anxiety or distress. Except that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Rasulullah said, even a thorn that pricks the believer, even a thorn, except that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes away his sins. But in particular, one hadith should really, should really, you know, uh, make us a little bit more optimistic. 
You know, the Prophet ﷺ taught us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guarantees the hukuk of every servant, the rights of every servant. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will show you mercy on the day of judgment if you are fortunate. He won't hold you to all of those rights. But as far as ibad and ibad, servants and servants, Allah will make sure everyone gets their rights back. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make sure everyone gets their rights back. So when the servant meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment, he will compensate them for all of the rights in this dunya that were not fulfilled. So much so that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, حَتَّى يَتَمَنَّ الْعَبْدُ أَنْ يَعُودَ إِلَى الدُّنْيَا لِيَكُونَ مِنَ الْمَظْلُومِينَ so much so that a believer, a servant, would wish to return to this dunya and be transgressed more, have his rights taken more. Because when Allah compensates you, it's greater than any compensation given to you in dunya. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what you put yourself through. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward that investment, even if your children grew up to treat you ill, or your children grew up you know, not being as pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they should be, not following the sunnah that they should be, that they, in the way that they should, and so on and so forth. Also, even a miscarriage, even a miscarriage is an investment. Even a child that was lost at a young age is an investment. Um, Sahil ibn Handala, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, we all know the famous story of Handala, radiallahu anhu, who claimed that, you know, that he was a hypocrite and went to Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, and so on and so forth. His son was known to not have any, he could not have children. Okay, from more than one wife. He married more than once and he was unable to have children. And people used to feel sorry for him. And he used to say, don't feel sorry for me that I wasn't able to have any children. He said, the one thing I wish Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have granted me was a miscarried child from all of the times I heard Rasulullah talk about the rewards of the parents of a miscarried child. SubhanAllah, all the times that Rasulullah talked about the reward of a person going through that distress, going through that hardship, because Rasulullah taught us in the A'zam al-Jaza' ma'a'zam al-Bala' The greatest reward is with the greatest hardship. The greater the hardship, the greater reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Rasulullah said that indeed the miscarried fetus will confront his Lord if he enters his parents into fire. And it will be said to him, O fetus which confronts your Lord, Enter your parents into paradise. And Rasulullah said that he will drag his parents into paradise even even with the umbilical cord. He will make sure his parents get into paradise. And that's why the Messenger وسلم, he said in the hadith of Mu'adh that no two Muslims lose three children except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause the parents to enter paradise through the favor of his mercy towards them. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, what about two? And Rasulullah said, and two. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, what about one? And he said, even one. And he said, the miscarried child will certainly drag its mother and father, even with the umbilical cord, into paradise. So subhanAllah, we have so many different ahadith about that. My favorite one, and I just did a video on Quran Weekly actually about the miscarried child, and I went into a little bit more detail. Um, but the hadith in, in um, Al-Bukhari, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the angels, Hadith Qudsi, when, when, the, when the child is taken away from a servant. So this is a child in infancy. And know that the Prophet ﷺ buried six out of seven of his children. Six out of seven of his children. So Rasulullah ﷺ certainly had empathy in this regard. And that's why there were so many ahadith about losing your children at that early age. Because of what he went through personally, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it hurt him. He used to cry. Right? And Abdul Abdul Rahman bin Auf radiallahu anhu saw him crying over his son. 
And he said, وَأَنْتَ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ He said, you too, O Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This isn't about questioning qadr. This is about just hurt. It hurts to, to go through that. And in this hadith, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the angels, have you taken the child of my servant? And they say, yes. And he says, have you taken the apple of his eye? Or the apple of his heart in one narration? He said, yes. And what did he do? They say, Hamadaka wa starja'. He said, Alhamdulillah, and inna lillah wa na'ilayhi raji'oon. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so build him a home and call it Baytul Hamd. In paradise, build him a home and call it the palace of praise. Right? Baytul Hamd, the house of praise. And Rasulullah says in the hadith from Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, Mari Abdul Mu'min Indi Jazah, Ida Kabatu Safiyahu min Ahli Dunya, Thummahtasaba illa al-Jannah. That there is no servant of mine, there is no reward for the servant of mine if I take, if I take his, his pure one, his beloved one from him in this dunya, and then he shows patience and perseverance and seeks the reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except for Jannah. Okay, except for Jannah. So we have so many different ahadith about that. Now we can start getting to the, the, um, and, and you know, one question I was asked, well, what if we just can't have children? And you know, subhanAllah, the best answer um, that I could find was actually the answer of Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala. He said that if a, if a couple is not granted children, but their intention for having children was that they wanted to raise righteous Muslims, then they would have the reward to the extent of their intention. So you imagine if a couple says, you know, inshallah, may Allah grant us, you know, five, six children we can raise to be hafad al-Qur'an and can... You know, they can, you know, they can be righteous believers and they can carry on our legacy. And Allah doesn't give them a single one. They get the same reward as people who went through the struggle to the extent of the sincerity of their intention. So Allah Azza wa knows the pain and the suffering of the believer and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what we go through and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards accordingly. Um, now the, now we can start getting into the pregnancy. Okay. The virtues of having a boy versus a girl. Um, I just did a video on Quran Weekly on that too called Cherish Your Daughters. We are very backwards when it comes to son and daughter, even in this society, unfortunately, even in, in our cultures until now. There's this idea that having a boy is preferred to having a girl. And, you know, the first answer to that is it doesn't matter. The first answer is it doesn't matter. And subhanAllah, there's a book, uh, Al-Bukhari uh, narrates in uh, Adab al-Mufrad. Um, from Kathir ibn Ubaid radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who said that whenever a child was born amongst the women of the Ansar, Aisha would not ask them if it was a boy or a girl, but rather she would ask, is the child healthy? SubhanAllah, she would ask, is the child healthy? And if she was told yes, she would say, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alam. She would praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She wouldn't even ask, is a boy or a girl? That's the wife of the Messenger wasallam. So the first answer to that question is, it doesn't matter. You know, when you're granted a healthy child, say, Alhamdulillah. You know, you shouldn't even be thinking about that. And the other answer to that is that actually in, in the Sunnah, we know that having a daughter is more virtuous than having a son. Okay, as Rasulullah said, anyone who is blessed with two daughters... And he raises them until they reach the age of marriage. Will be, you know, and he raises them with good tarbiyah. يَكُونُ مَعِي فِي الْجَنَّةِ كَهَاتَيْنِ يَكُونُ صَاحِبِ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ كَهَاتَيْنِ He will be on the day of judgment with me like these two fingers. Uh, you know, and subhanAllah, think about that. Rasulullah guaranteeing the same reward that he guarantees uh, for the orphan. And we know even with the mother of Maryam, السلام, and you talk about a woman that wasn't able to have children for a long time. 
And finally, when she became pregnant with Maryam, her husband was Imran. This is Hanna bint Faqud and her husband Imran. And they're so excited and they're happy. And in fact, the people were happy for them because Imran was the imam of his people. And then Imran died while she was pregnant. Imran died while she was pregnant. And she, you know, she assumed when she made du'a to Allah, Allah would give her a boy that would continue the legacy of prophethood. Then, Rabbi inni wada'tuha unfa. It's a girl. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wallahu Allah knows what you gave birth to. Allah knows it's a girl. Allah didn't accidentally make it a girl. And the girl is not like the boy. You know what's funny? I was listening to someone give a lecture one time. I was listening to a khutbah actually in the Middle East. I was sitting in the, in the khutbah. And the imam was talking about, and by the way, the imams in the Middle East are not always uh, scholars, just letting you know. For, you know that's, an, <laughs> that's not an understatement at all. Um, and subhanAllah, sometime, and, and one time I was listening to him give a khutbah, and he was talking about the virtue of the boy over the girl and the men over the women. The whole khutbah was about why men are better than women. And he says, وَيَقُولُ اللَّهُ عَزَّ وَجَلْ فِي الْقُرْآنِ الْكَرِيمِ وَلَيْسَ الذَّكَرُ كَالْعُنْثَى And Allah says in the Qur'an, and the boy is not like the girl. And it's like you forgot the, that that was the mother of Maryam saying that. وَلَيْسَ الذَّكَرُ كَالْعُنْثَى But subhanAllah, people were very happy about that, obviously, because there's a bunch of men, right, who were being told that they were better than the women. Um, but Allah instead of just giving her a prophet, Allah could have made Hanna bint Thaqut pregnant with Isa alayhi salam. Right? End of story. You have one of Ulul Azmi min al-Rusul, one of the greatest messengers, Al-Masih ibn Maryam, as your child. But instead, Allah gave her the best woman. You know, inna Allah astafaki wa taharaki wa astafaki ala nisa' al-alameen. The best woman of the women of mankind. And then, through her, Allah gave you Isa alayhi salam too. So subhanAllah, the blessings that Allah gave her. So not only does she benefit, not only is Maryam her Salat but Isa Islam is also her Salat Right? So we should think in that way. And again, as Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha um, used to think. Alright, now we're going to get into the fiqh. Let me make a clarification from now. It is absolutely impossible. I have 79 pages of notes that I've hand-typed with different madhahab, different opinions, I can't sit here and give you every single opinion on every single issue. So sometimes I won't be able to. I'll try to summarize it and I'll try to paraphrase. Inshallah ta'ala, Imam Nadim Bashir, our, our sheikh, will also be with us, inshallah, after Salat al-Asr when we do the Q&A. So he'll sit with me. So if there's any difference or thing of that sort, then inshallah ta'ala, he can also shed light on that so we can have more than one perspective. So when I talk about fiqhi issues, especially some of these are very sensitive issues. Okay, especially the first one, which is the issue of birth control. <laughs> these are very, very, very sensitive issues. And I actually went through these issues with him to make sure that we're on the same page with them. Alhamdulillah. Uh, I mean, and the opinions that I present are primarily the opinions of Al-Majma' Al-Faqiyah, which is the Assembly of Muslim Jurists um, of America, which include my, you know, my teachers also. So um, I'll present it with that balance, inshallah ta'ala. I hope it's the, the balanced opinions on these issues. Um, when we talk about these things. So, the first issue we're going to talk about is the issue of birth control. And again, forgive me because I'll have to be very explicit when we talk about these issues um, because it's fiqh and there's no hayat when we talk about deen, there's no shyness when we talk about the deen in that regard. So, there is no doubt in Islam. First and foremost, the point, there is no in Islam, the more the merrier. Right? The more children is the most recommended in Islam. Rasulullah encouraged us to have as many children as possible. There's no doubt about that. Okay? 
Now, there are two types of birth control that we address here. Number one is permanent birth control. And number two is temporary birth control. Permanent birth control is haram by consensus unless there is a serious medical issue. Okay? Unless there is a serious medical issue or there is something that would cause the woman harm for a long period of time. Okay? The, you know, permanent birth control is haram. Okay? It would be, um, it would be allowed for a woman in the case where, again, um, it would only be allowed for a woman in the case where, you know, she would never be able to have kids or it would be harmful for her to ever have kids. So it would be, um, allowed to do, um, tubal ligation. I think that's when they, uh, you know, that's whenever they keep the woman from ever having children. A vasectomy for a man is always haram. So the man can't opt to do a vasectomy even if it's going to be harmful for his wife to ever be pregnant. Why? Because this is a situation, this is a condition of the mother in that case, not a condition of the man. Allah alam what would happen in the future. Right? So vasectomy would always be haram for the man. It is never permissible. And it would be halal for the woman, again, only in the case where she will always, um, always be uh, at risk. All right. Now, temporary birth control is where we have the disagreement. Um, alhamdulillah, I mean, there isn't much disagreement uh, about temporary birth control. There's a hadith from Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu ta'ala anhu in Sahih Muslim where Jabir radiallahu anhu says, that they used to practice withdrawal. The Sahabi used to practice withdrawal even as the Quran was coming down. And the point that he was making is that that was their form of temporary birth control and it was practiced back then even in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, even while the Qur'an was being um, revealed. So that tells us that there is an allowance for temporary birth control with conditions. Now what's the difference between the two? And Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he says that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees a child for you, even if you're using temporary birth control, the child will come anyway. So it's a precaution. But at the same time, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not a measure that would permanently do anything. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could still, and you know, it's funny because no matter, the most effective method of birth control still would always say 99%. It would never, no one could claim 100%. Right? There's no way to make that claim. And Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah said, it's a relationship with the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So whenever you take that, whenever you use temporary birth control, you're not saying that I'm not going to have children. You're doing, you're, you're trying to prevent it for whatever reason. We'll talk about what are valid reasons and legitimate reasons. You're trying to prevent it for those reasons but if Allah wants to give you a child Allah will give you a child anyway and you have to accept that qadr right you have to accept that decree from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so there are conditions to which it is allowed number one it should be by mutual consent and this is by consensus it's the right of the husband and it's the right of the wife to have a child so temporary birth control can only be used by mutual consent all right, I've seen situations, in fact, Imam Nadim was just mentioning one to me actually, where a husband wants to force his wife to use birth control. It can, you cannot do that. Nor can the wife force the husband. Okay, this is something that has to be done by mutual consent. Number two, it should be medically safe. Medically safe. Okay, so the Sahaba used to practice withdrawal, um, IUDs, spermicides, all of those types of things. Birth control pills is where the issue of contention comes up. The qarar of the majma', the decision of the majma' was that um, if it's with the consent of a doctor and it's determined that there is extremely low risk because in the sharia and in, in, in our fiqh, if something is of extremely low risk then it does not, you know, it does not, it's not taken into consideration, then that would be okay. Number three, 
You should not decide to have no children whatsoever. So the number is flexible. The number is flexible. Okay, but the ulama say to, to get married and from the very beginning try to say that we never want to have children, that's a problem. Limiting the number, spacing, all of that is what the Sahaba used to use it for. Okay, that's the third condition. Alright, of temporary birth control. And I know there's going to be a lot of questions around all of these things. Inshallah, at the end we'll take questions. What about the concept of abortion? Um, and Islam is not as black and white as other religions are. And it's funny because, you know, we're usually the extremists with everything, right? Or portrayed to be the extremists and those that are refusing to give up on tradition and things of that sort. And I remember having this discussion in ethics class in college. And the evangelical Christians were a lot worse than we are <laughs> on this issue. Right? And that's why you have terrorists, and let's use the word terrorist, because it's an ideology, people that blow up abortion clinics and stuff like that, right? That's terrorism. Now, in Islam, there are three categories in abortion. There's the first 40 days, there's the first four months, and then there's all the way, you know, from four months to delivery, after four months until the time of delivery. So Islam separates the issue into three different issues, into three different categories. So, for the first 40 days, we, is the soul in the body or is there no soul in the body yet? In our deen? No soul. So, are, is life conceived at the time whenever, whenever, uh, whenever the baby is first formed, whenever the fetus is first formed, is life conceived at that moment? No, we don't believe that in our deen. So there is no life in the first 40 days. So, having an abortion, I'll talk about circumstances. Number one, it would fall under darura or haja. There are three levels of need in Sharia. There's darura, which is a dire need. There's haja, which is a need, but it's not like something that you can't live without. But it's, it, it is a necessity, it is a need, but you'd still be able to live. And there's tahsiniyat, which is not a need, it's just comfort. Okay? It's an embellishment. Alright? So, this type of abortion could take place under darura or haja. Um, darura is a dire need. Darura is there's a threat to the woman's life. The child has some terminal defects. It's not going to go forward. Those are those are daruriyat. Okay, those are dire needs, and it's a case by case. And anytime you're going to apply a special case, you need to consult with a scholar anyway, right? I'm just giving the basics of it, so you can have just the foundation and, and understanding of the entire topic. But obviously, if anyone's ever put in this situation, then they need to consult. All right. So darura is that um, haja, as we said, is a need. But you could still technically live without it. Alright, so in essence, a darura is only medical. Darura is never social. Darura is never a social need. Darura is purely a medical need. A dire need in this situation is only a purely medical need. A haja could be a social need. Okay, so a haja, for example, would be rape. If a woman was raped. Alright, and she, con and she conceived as a result of that. She would be allowed, Allah ta'ala, that's my opinion, the opinion of many fuqaha, she would be allowed at that point. Um, if the father dies, for example, she becomes widowed, and it's still at the very start, still within the first 40 days, she would be allowed to discontinue that pregnancy, according to many of the fuqaha. So there are many ways of that. Obviously, there's the, the, the morning after pill, which is that, that which blocks fertilization and things of that sort. Um, and there's obviously a traditional way of abortion. The other condition um, is that it should not be done for fear of poverty. That's the main thing right there should not be done out of fear of poverty. That is not a social need, a hajjah in this regard. Because you don't know where Allah subhanahu, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends his list, 
his sustenance, and you're expressing mistrust, distrust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that moment. So you cannot just say, I don't want to have a kid right now. It's still 40 days. There's no life anyway. Let's get rid of it because we're poor. We can't afford it right now. That's completely not allowed. And that's where the ayah falls in. Do not kill your children for fear of poverty. Okay? Uh, we will provide for them, and we will pro- and we provide for you, right? So you don't know where the risk is. It could be because of those children Allah sends you risk, right? It could be because of that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends you sustenance. So that is never a valid need, okay? Then you have the first four months. So 40 days has passed, but you're still in the first four months. Life or no life? Is there life in the, in the, in the womb yet? No. No. Rasulullah said, at what point does the angel... Blow the soul into the fetus when? Four months. So we're talking about before four months. Okay, how many weeks is that, by the way? Just making sure you guys are awake. Okay, good. Alright, so the angel breathes the soul in at four months, 16 weeks. So within that time, after 40 days, but still within the four months period, a chi- it could, an abortion could only take place under darura, dire need. Hajj does not apply anymore. A social need does not apply at that point. Okay? Darura is a medical need, a purely medical need. So, a medical deformity, fear of the mother's life or fear of the child's life. Okay? At that point, it would still be allowed. After four months, is it ever, the soul is there, right? So, is it allowed at that point? Only in one condition, under one condition, and that is if the mother is surely going to die. Because in the shara, the mother's life takes precedence over the child's life. That is the only situation at that point. And the reason being is at that point, it is a full life. Okay, it's a full life. The baby is a full life. The Prophet ﷺ said that if a woman is, if a woman's baby is killed after she's four months pregnant, there's qisas. Okay, there, it's a full life. And also, you know, many of the scholars, and this is the opinion I hold, we can't go into too much detail of that. Many of the scholars say that if the child dies after four months, they still have to be named, they should be shrouded, and janazah should be prayed. And even the Imam Nawi rahimahullah said to do aqiqah somewhere, just give the aqiqah meat somewhere, just to fulfill that, that sunnah. Okay, so it's a full life at that point. So you don't play with the child's life after four months under any need. And Rasulullah said that the miscarried fetus should be prayed for. So this is an authentic hadith from Abu Dawood and At-Tirmidhi from Al-Walid ibn Shu'ba that Rasulullah said the miscarried fetus should be prayed for. So you should... And actually by consensus of the scholar, if the baby... So we're talking about miscarriage or abortion here after four months. If the baby made a sound by consensus, name, shrouding, janazah. Okay? If the baby didn't make a sound, then that's where Ahmed and Ash-Shafri um, would say that you have to name it, shroud it. It's a full child. Okay, so it, it was a human life at that point. Alright? Any questions about that, that topic? Yes, Whatever you've covered or Just what we what we have covered. So uh, the issue of uh, going back to the uh, different on right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, there are a few issues right there, like uh, now there's a point or IEDs. Uh, like for the guarantee for 
Yes, it is a lot. Okay. What about also like let's say whoever has like few children, then it then it grows in age, and then it's hard to manage to have more babies and so on. Uh huh. And the other one. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So spacing out again. So we said temporary contraception. That's the question. Temporary contraception. It is completely allowed under the conditions that we mentioned. Spacing, and that's why Jabir radiAllahu taala anhu mentioned that the Sahaba used to do it also. And it's very common in the books of fiqh, obviously. When we talk about al-azal in particular. That was their only form of temporary contraception. Was um, was birth was that form was withdrawal. One question from the sisters. Then I'll go back to talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in, so the morning after pill, we said it could be used within the first what? Four. I'm talking, but legally speaking, from a shari perspective, within the first four months. So I know I understand what you're saying. It's only within 72 hours. But I'm saying the social need might come into play. So if a woman was raped, for example, with with, and so she wants to use that, that's fine. That's allowed. That's fine because that there's that's fine. So Sheikh Hatim is also. I, I saw some of the Mashaikh asked that it's fine. Inshallah. Right, I'll continue inshallah ta'ala. So I'll take like one question, one question after every section, then we'll have an extended Q and A inshallah. Now we'll talk about some of the fiqhi rules and restrictions for pregnant women. Okay. Getting into pregnant women as a whole. Number one, all blood, and this is just known, all blood is considered istihala. All blood is considered, istihala means other blood, okay, so it's not najasa. All blood is considered istihala, unless there's an indication otherwise, okay? So, if, there isn't, if it's a miscarriage, after four months, then it would be considered nifas, okay? Nifas is again the, the, the period in which the woman would not fast and she would not, you know, she would uh, not uh, pray and she would treat that blood like nifas. Okay, she would treat that blood like nifas. And we'll talk about the rulings of nifas. But otherwise, any blood that's seen during the pregnancy is to be considered istihada. It's not to be considered um, impure or najas or najas. It's not to be considered impure blood. When it comes to fasting, this is a very touchy issue, and I hate talking about it, but I have to talk about it. When it comes to fasting, okay, so she has to break her fast if it's going to be harmful to the baby. That's by consensus. If there is, if it's known that it's going to be harmful to the baby, then she would have to break her fast. And in fact, it would be more rewarding for her to break her fast. The hadith is by Abu Dawood and Tirmidhi and Nasa'i and Majah that Rasulullah said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, re- has relieved the traveler of half of the prayer and of the duty to fast. And he has relieved pregnant and nursing mothers of the duty to fast. And this is an authentic hadith. Okay, so the, the hadith, Rasulullah is comparing the pregnant woman and the breastfeeding woman to the traveler in regards to her fasting, but not in regards to her prayer, obviously, not in regards to the fasl. Now, so the issue here is obviously, at what point do you know if it's harmful to the baby or not harmful to the baby? Because the verdict is really not completely out on this issue. Um, there's a lot of medical research, obviously, that's that's going on about this issue of fasting. Um, so in essence, the Sharia did not list. So if you read in the books of fiqh, you'll find that there are various opinions on regards to you know, whether the asl, whether the default is that a woman should fast or that she should not fast. Okay? 
whether that's the default ruling, okay? And there's a lot of variance there, and there's a lot of flexibility also in understanding that. But in essence, the Sharia permits you to break your fast. So while this, all this medical research is going on and things of that sort, and there has been quite a, a bit of research to suggest that it's harmful to the baby to fast continuously in Ramadan, then it is, it's better to be responsible with that. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Um, and contrary to popular belief, all, popular belief all, actually most of the evidence, medical evidence, is showing that, you know, a lot of times people think in the first trimester it's not that harmful. Third trimester would be harmful. Actually, a lot of medical evidence is showing that it's actually more harmful in the first trimester. And I'm not a doctor, so I'm just talking about what I've read in terms of research. And that there, you know, kids have been shown to have learning disabilities later on in life. So a child might be born very normal. That's just research, obviously, but it's not a, it's not conclusive evidence. The point that I'm trying to make is it's not as simple as what meets the eye, right? It's not just, you know, well, I'm not that big now, so I can fast now. It's not a big deal. So with that being said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the udhr to the woman. She gave, he gave the, uh, he gave the excuse to the woman to break her fast. Um, so consult with your doctor. Okay. Ask your doctor. All right. Um, and that's the benefit of having a Muslim doctor because maybe then, you know, for example, fasting alternate days or fasting two, three days a week or whatever it is, trying to come up with a plan so that the baby is still getting proper nutrition and things of that sort. Uh, then do that, inshallah ta'ala. But consult with your doctor um, about what to do there. I personally don't recommend it. I'm being very honest with you. I don't recommend it because, and I, you know, I've, and that's, that's just my personal opinion in that regard. Allah gave the excuse. It's up to the person whether they want to take that or not. I feel like it's it's always better safe than sorry. And we do find examples in the shara from the sahabiyat where they missed the entire month of Ramadan while they were pregnant. So if the sahabiyat took that udhr, if they took that excuse, then there's no reason why we can't say to the sisters, you have that excuse. But she doesn't want to make up a lot of days. She wants to fast two, three days a week, space them out, whatever it is, to keep the nutrition going, to not affect the baby, especially if the siyam is in the winter, right? If Ramadan comes in the winter, which is not going to be for a while and the days are short, that's fine. Okay, but the summer days in particular, um, you know, where you have long days and sometimes very, you know, tasking jobs or, and, and I mean motherhood too, you know, just doing stuff around the house, you're very tired and things of that sort. It's probably better to take that excuse. It's probably better to take that rukhsa um, in that regard. All right. Now, as far as making up those fasts is concerned, according to the Mu'tamad position, the reliable position of all four methods, you would have to make up that fast. Okay? And the reason why I say that is, yes, you can find a qawl from Ibn Abbas, a saying from Ibn Abbas, but still, the four imams agree upon this in the Mu'tamah, the reliable position of all four of the methods is that a woman would have to make up that fast uh, and not give fidya in particular. So giving the, the, you know, feeding a poor person for missing that fast, although a lot of women will just opt out of Making up, making up the fast and just give fidya. That's not the position of the four madhabs. In fact, many of the scholars claimed there was ijma' on this issue. So Ibn Qudam rahimahullah in al-Mughni, he claimed that there was, absolute, there was ijma', there was consensus. And consensus in our deen is a proof. Right? So it's important to be careful with that. Now what does that mean? The, the pregnant woman is most like a person that is temporarily unable to fast. Not a person who is permanently unable to fast. A person who's permanently unable to fast has the option to just give the fidya. Obviously, they can't make up the fast. And that's where Ibn Abbas anhu said, the ayah which talked about fidya as an option was partially abrogated when Ramadan came, when the command of Ramadan came. Not fully abrogated. Okay? So, 
she is most like a person who's temporarily sick, and a person who's temporarily sick. And as um, as the scholars say, Rasulullah compared the pregnant woman to who? In the previous hadith we just mentioned, the traveler. Does a traveler pay fidya or does a traveler make up their fast? The traveler makes up their fast. So with that being said, she would have to make up those fasts. That can seem very overwhelming. Right? I understand that. And a woman wanted to throw a shoe at me uh, when, I, when I said that last time in the class. She was very upset with me and she said, we don't need to be hearing from a male scholar about this. I said, I'm sorry. You know, there's a woman scholar, inshallah, that can give you this lecture in that masjid, then go ahead. I'm, I'm sitting down. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Because um, I understand. It sounds, it sounds very harsh coming, you know, from me that you'd have to make up those fasts. But there is rahmah in this regard. There is mercy in this regard. You can take your time making up those fasts. You can make them up gradually. You can space them out throughout the entire year. Fasting while breastfeeding is not nearly as harmful as fasting while pregnant, right? Fasting while breastfeeding, so then you could still do alternate, you know, two days a week, for example, one day a week while you're breastfeeding, the permission is still there to make up those fasts. It would not, it's, it's not meant to punish you, okay, or to overburden you, alright? So you take your time making these up, and even if it passes over the next Ramadan, some of the scholars said you have to give fidya, you have to give expiation. There's no proof for that whatsoever, along with the fast. There's no proof for that. So there's no reason to burden the woman with the paying the fidya also. That's for a person who didn't have a legitimate excuse and did not make up the fasts by the next Ramadan. But a woman, obviously, who is pregnant or breastfeeding has a very legitimate excuse. So you space out your fasting. Obviously, you want to try to get them out the way within the next year, 30 days or 29 days. Um, you know, and try to space them out over the, the next year. You want to try your best to do that. But at the same time, there's no evidence that you'd have to pay a fidya at the same time. Another thing also is you should let someone know, someone from your close kin, how many days you have left to make up. Because Rasulullah said in a hadith that's muttafaq alayh, that's agreed upon, that whoever dies and was obligated to fast, let his next of kin make up their fast for them. The, the issue of disagreement is if, you know, can, can you fast just a sunnah fast and send dedicated to the dead? And my answer to that would be no. And many ulama say no. But there's this hadith which is agreed upon where Rasulullah said, if you missed fasts and they were mandatory fasts, then your next of kin should make them up. So let someone know. You know, let your husband know that, you know, if I die, I'm going to throw these fasts on you. <laughs> you got to make these fasts up for me. All right. Let someone know so that they can make these fasts up for you. Um, at that point. So don't feel overwhelmed or overburdened by them. Take your time in making up these fasts. But again, at that situ in that situation, you're like a person who's temporary, temporarily sick, not a person who is permanently ill. Alright? Another thing is that obviously there's a lot of discharge when a woman is pregnant. Um, so what it, how does that affect the wudu? Okay? It's simple. Hadath da'im, which is continuous discharge, a person would have to... Um, you don't have to, cons you don't have to feel like you have to keep on breaking your prayer. A woman would simply wash herself, clean herself, make wudu, you know, put something to block that discharge and, and pray her salah and not worry about that. Um, and Imam Ahmad rahimahullah and some of the Shafi'is including Nawi. Now when I say Imam Ahmad, I follow the Hanbali school of thought. So if I say Imam Ahmad and I, and I, I'm a proponent of that opinion, don't be offended. Uh, it's just, this is the school that I follow in that regard. So Imam Ahmed rahimahullah and, and also Imam al-Nawi and some of the Shafi'is, they said that a woman can combine prayers also if the discharge becomes excessive. 
Okay, if it becomes extremely excessive, she can even combine um, her prayers at that at that point. The other scholars say she should still pray on time, but she should just continue to um, to keep something there to keep herself clean, to keep her and it's considered hadith da'im, which is a continuous discharge at that moment. Also in salat, in prayer, one of the concessions is that when the woman feels excessive pain towards the end of her third tri, you know, of her third trimester. She is allowed to pray sitting down at that point. Okay? So she's been given that permission to pray sitting down. Alright? Now the next one is, is uh, if you go to the doctor, obviously you're going to be told that you need to take prenatal pills. DHA and prenatal pills. Um, now with that being said, a lot of these pills have gelatin in them. Actually, the vast majority of them have gelatin in them. Right, so I actually wanted to I wanted to make this presentation as as comprehensive as possible. So I actually researched pills that don't have gelatin in them, and actually my wife used these, which was Nature Made. There was a brand called Nature Made. You go to Whole Foods, you get a brand called Nature Made. There is no gelatin in those prenatal pills. Also, alhamdulillah, we have different halal vitamin uh, companies now. I don't know if they have prenatal pills. Um, Noor Vitamins and HNC. You can check if they have halal vitamins, uh, prenatal vitamins in particular. Noor vitamins and HNC, but if you're looking for a brand, Nature Made does not have gelatin in it, so it's not permissible to use gelatin um, in that moment. The next thing is the hukum on your doctor, finding a doctor. Alhamdulillah, we live in Dallas here. There's plenty of female doctors, plenty of Muslim women OBGYNs that can take care of that. Um, but what is the preference, the order of preference there? So the scholars say the order of preference when a person has to expose their awrah uh, for medical reasons, Muslim woman is the first one, and if you can't find a Muslim woman, then, then who? Then a non-Muslim woman. And if you can't find a non-Muslim woman, then a Muslim man, and if you can't find a Muslim man, then it would be a non-Muslim man. Now obviously you're going to be able to find a non-Muslim woman anywhere. Okay? Um, but I was just mentioning that just so you can have that in your mind, you know, knowing the, knowing the fiqhi ruling on that. The, the order of exposure of awra when there's any medical emergency actually for that. You know, just on that note, any medical emergency if a person has to expose what is traditionally hijab, that is the order that they would have to follow. Alright? So alhamdulillah, being in Dallas, mashallah, it's a huge blessing just having so many options uh, in that regard. Alhamdulillah. Um, the next one, contentious issue, baby showers. I get asked about this all the time. And I'm so hesitant because people get so emotional with the answer. Now, in principle, there is nothing wrong with it. In principle. Don't just put halal next to it right away and say, alright, I'm not going to listen to anything else he says. In principle, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it because it's not religious in its nature. There's no tashabbuh because shub, you know, uh, imitation is in, in things of deen. It's not associated with any religion. Um, and it doesn't compete with Eid, so even the scholars that would say that it's an Eid to Aad that comes every year, it's annual like a birthday or think something of that sort. It doesn't compete with the Eid unless you get pregnant every year, uh, <laughs> which many people do, mashallah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's, it's not annual, so in principle there is nothing wrong with the idea of, of coming together. Uh, for a baby shower. But there's a few conditions, obviously. Number one, extravagance. The salaf has to be avoided. There's a lot of extravagance at these things. A lot of wastefulness, a lot of extravagance, just like in weddings, right? <laughs> there's a lot of wastefulness. You know, and it also puts people in a hard position socially. 
you're expected to give a certain gift and you know if you're given a gift you're expected to give a certain gift this is wrong to put people under that pressure is wrong so it should not be treated like a must can't get mad at someone for not attending a baby shower um, specific practices practices that are specific to the cultural baby cultural baby showers that we have uh, should be avoided specific practices should be avoided as much as possible why because they're shubhat they're doubtful matters okay so you should try to avoid the specific practices. But in essence, if it's just a gathering to give gifts to the mom, to prepare her uh, for her baby, then it's fine. But I want to make a note on that. Um, it's much better to do that. So giving gifts to the mother, you know, helping them prepare for the baby is a good thing. But it is much better to do that after she gives birth to the baby. A lot of times I've seen it happen. It's heartbreaking. The baby shower is done. You have all these gifts all over the place. And then, you know, the baby dies. The, the psychological and the traumatic effect of that, you know, is not something that the Sharia would want, obviously. Okay, so we should not we should not want that to happen. All right, so it's better so it's better not to do that to people to give the gifts before and have this party before. It's better to do it afterwards. One time, just bring your gifts. Maybe you can combine it with the aqiqah, right? It's good for the people to provide gifts and you know help the mother prepare and things of that sort. So in, again, in principle, nothing wrong with it. Specific practices should be avoided, okay? And we should try to eliminate the non, the non-Islamic practices. And it's better to do it afterwards. It's better to do it after, because then you'd also be fulfilling a sunnah at that point, which is help, helping the, the 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 new parents is actually a form of sunnah, as we'll come across, right? The Sahaba would help each other out. Giving gifts afterwards is is actually a sunnah, okay? Um, also, in the last trimester. In the last trimester, uh, many of the scholars, particularly an Imam Malik rahimahullah, and from the Maliki school, they say at that point a woman can only dispose of a third of her property. Why? A person does their will, right? They can only, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already designated two thirds of everything that you own. One third of it is what you own, right? You can, you can give charity with that. You can designate some of it to your family. Perhaps you want to give you know, someone who's getting a share, a, a larger share. So you can do whatever you want with that one third. Some of the ulama, they said that um, Rasulullah uh, said that a woman in their last trimester, in her last trimester, because she's so close, subhanAllah, to death, especially in those times, you know, you don't have the, the hospitals and things that we have today, right? The advancements that we have today, that she's so close at that point, that at that point she can only designate one third of her property. Um, I'm not saying I agree with that opinion. I just find it very significant, subhanAllah, just to mention it. Um, but there is no authentic hadith that I could find, at least, that would that would designate that. But a person who's following the Maliki school, obviously, they would be bound by that opinion. Uh, but just to show you again, you're you're you know You're in you're in a position of being a soldier of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala at that moment. You're being pushed close to death at those moments, and it's very important to keep that in mind. What are some of the things that can be done during pregnancy? Okay. Um, number one is that children can hear things in the womb, right? You see people with their headphones and stuff like that walking around, playing stuff on their iPad, iPod or iPad or whatever it is, letting them listen to all kinds of jazz music or you know <laughs> symphonies and stuff like that to try to enhance their brains. And you know, subhanAllah, it's it's been medically proven that when the child is in a traumatic environment, I was listening to to uh, 
a doctor talk about this, a child psychologist talk, when it's in a traumatic environment, when it's hearing yelling and screaming all the time, even when it's in the womb, it'll come out and it'll already kind of have a bad attitude, right? It'll already be traumatized a little bit from everything it's been hearing on the outside. And you find that in the, with the time of the Salaf, Imam al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he said the Salaf used to recite the Qur'an to the child even when the child was in the womb. Okay, they would actually recite the Qur'an to the child even when in the womb. And he said especially in the voice of the mother. Because that's the relationship obviously that's going to need to be the most, the strongest and one that's going to need to have the most trust in it and things, the component of trust. So in the voice of the parents, I mean, even the, mother, the father also, but hearing the Qur'an in that voice. So you don't just put sudais on your stomach. What, you know, you recite the Qur'an to your child, subhanAllah, while the child is in the womb. Um, and no, there are no particular surahs for that. Right? So I was seeing some websites like recite every day Surah Al-Fatiha 45 times to your child and then uh, read Qur'an 17 times. All of that is nonsense. Right? Just reading Qur'an in general is a good thing to do. Reading Qur'an to your child while the child is in the womb. Imam Ibn Sarin rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that a person should make the child familiar with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before the child comes on the womb. So even speaking to the child about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making them familiar with Allah's names, subhanAllah, even if obviously they're not going to come out, you know, like Isa alayhi salam and say, Inni Abdullah, you know, <laughs> it's not going to happen. If it does, then mashallah, but you know, we'd be pretty impressed with just Baba, you know, or Mama, you know. <laughs> But still, just preparing the child and having a good environment around, subhanAllah, harmony around the child, not lots of yelling and screaming and stuff like that. Okay, having harmony in the environment, even while the child is in, is in the stomach. And obviously making dua for the child's righteousness and help. You know, think about it. This is the time where you really need to step up your dua. Okay, so engaging in dua. Not just making dua for a gender. You shouldn't be doing that. Making dua for righteousness, for health. Okay? And go far. Zakaria alayhi salam, when he made dua, before Yahya alayhi salam, you know, he's a, in his 90s and he's making dua to Allah for a child. Before Allah even told him that, okay, I'll give you a child, he's already asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all the qualities of the child. Right? Yarithuni wa yarithumin ali aqub wa ja'alhu rabbi radiya. He's already talking to Allah about how he wants his child to be. Okay? So make dua for specific things. You know, make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants you, you know, a scholar. Make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants you a da'iyah. Make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes your child special. Wadiyah, pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Make dua that Allah makes your child intelligent. All those things. Make dua for that. Be specific. Don't wait to see the child and then decide then how you're going to make dua for the child. Make dua for specifics, even while the child is in the womb. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and break for questions, inshallah, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back, inshallah, at 3 o'clock. Yes, sister. Um, I'm in my second trimester, and I get um, really dizzy, and a head rush coming from the Jews to scan. So I modify by I mean, it's better to maintain consistency throughout the salah. So if you if you have the excuse to sit, just sit. Yeah. If you're gonna if you if you don't know if you're gonna fall, or you're gonna be dizzy or things of that sort. So for example, if you want to pray like if you think you can make it two rakahs without getting dizzy and, and it's not harmful to you at all, then you could do those two rakahs of sunnah that way. But you know, it's it's better not to just be alternating so much throughout the salah. Just from the fifth of salah. If it's consistent, that's fine, inshallah. Do as much as you can, that's fine. But you you have the permission. If you have the permission to sit for one rakah and salah. 
you have the permission to sit throughout the salah. If if you're not able to stand for the entire salah, then you have that permission. Yeah, it's not the act of standing, it's just going to Sujood. Have you talked to a doctor about that and things of that sort? Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's why, mashallah, women are, are mujahideen at that time. All kinds of stuff happens, right? <laughs> uh, I'll go one brother, one sister, so yeah. Yes, What's that? Is it okay to ask for a daughter or ask for a son? It's okay. It's okay to ask for. It's okay. You can't, you can't say it's haram to ask for a gender. Just don't be disappointed if it's a girl <laughs> or if it's a son. It's okay. Yeah. I've never been to a baby shower, so I can't give you too much specifics on on what you need to avoid. But I mean, obviously, you know, just things that are that are very specific, like to the culture. Right? It, they're shubhat, they're doubtful matters. Right? So bringing flowers to a wedding is okay, but you know, when you start doing like specific things, like turning around and throwing it and whoever catches it. Like, like when you do that kind of stuff. I've never been to a baby shower, no idea how a baby shower looks. Alright? But just avoiding specific practices because they might fall into doubtful things. Alright, so that's all. So just having a get-together to plan for it, that's fine. Not being extravagant. Again, it's better to do it afterwards, but it's fine. Yes? So, uh, going back to the previous garbage, I mean, you still dispose in a reasonable way. But there's no soul at that point. The ruh is different from the physical preparations and things of that sort. The soul is different, it's distinguished. So you can't do the naming? No, no, you don't name at that point. You don't do that. I should repeat questions, right? The question was about if a child dies before four months. So you still, you're, you're obviously not going to throw it away. You'll still dignify the the fetus, right? But you're not going to name it and do janazah and things of that sort. Also, at that point, sisters, yes. You assume it has a soul. You assume that it was more because you take the safe side in that. You build upon what's certain. So if you don't know if it's four months, it could have been four months, maybe a day younger, a day older, then you would take the safe side. Yeah, obviously. It's, yeah. I mean, the Salaf didn't used to have like ultrasounds and stuff like that. And you, 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 do, you make your best judgment and you assume you, you always want to be, you, you always want to err on the side of caution. What's that? Yes, and the blood will be nifas at that time. You're assuming fully that it's a four-month, if it's on the border, you're assuming it's a four-month-old baby. Um, who raised their hands first? Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Because it's a hajj, it's not a darura. So it's not just a danger to the life. 
No, because a haja, so the question is about deformity and things of that sort. And if the child has some serious issues and it's still within the four months, right, then at that point it still, it still falls within haja, it's still allowed. Okay. Sister's question. Yeah. Didn't, did you guys attend the will part last night? The will gathering? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, in reference to the will, in, in a will. So right now, if I want to give all of my money to my daughter because I feel like it, that's fine. It's halal. Um, but once you're dead, you can't say in my will, I want to give everything to my daughter. At that point, it goes to the, the divisions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made an inheritance. So in essence, at that point, Imam Malik rahimahullah said at that point, in that last trimester, then you're like that person. You can't just give everything up because you're free. It's you're, only a, you're only allowed to designate that one third. Yeah. I'll do one more question and we'll take a break inshallah. Yeah. I'll get you back. Yeah, after four months or It's a miscarriage regardless. But the, the fetus has the soul after four months. Alright? Alright, so we'll take a break, inshallah ta'ala. Probably ten minutes, inshallah. Give people a chance to refresh themselves. I think, do we have any refreshments outside? We have tea and refreshments outside, inshallah ta'ala. So we'll, we'll reconvene at 3.05, inshallah. Okay? Reconvene at 3.05. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi yeah. Yeah, let me turn the mic off. It's not personal or anything. It's just no, no, no. before four months, right? How can you move When you say There are many words for soul in the Yeah, that's your, 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 that's your
The Lord is not there anymore. So I'm not saying that the prophecy So just getting your help on this. So she's asking the question. She says, you know, the hadith about the soul not being breathing until four months. You know? So at 16 weeks on the sonogram, the baby's making some decisions. So my answer was that the Lord is not necessarily. Like the baby is. Jumping, kicking, fighting his fingers, not just growing, but making it out of the same issue. Shoot finger, it's not a rape. It's not just a rape. I don't understand that. I mean, I think I want to have to talk to a doctor about that. Some doctor I don't want to go
I can take my email here, so you can take my email both of us at the same time. Okay. 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 So I have to pray all the No, I'm So you should have treated them. And it wasn't even. Yeah, they can't shift. It's like, you know, it's something you don't know. You made your best question. Yeah, I like pray that Let me give you my email address. Sure. My email address is so when is the baby Oh, and they are at email. I am Do you want me to type? I'll look into it. I'll study it inshallah as much as I can. No, I'm not disrespected at all by that. I can't get my hair. I'm even going to make you nervous. So that's that's what he should be writing in his will. Yesterday there's someone did ask this question that can we just write that our money be distributed based on Islamic inheritance and the attorney said no. It has to be written out precisely. The way he wants it. No, not the way he wants it, the way Allah mentions it in the Quran. That's the way it needs to be. The other thing, it can be based on what he wants, his assets, and the right. But the money that's going to be distributed, everyone, you cannot, the people who are going to be inheriting that money, you cannot simply cut them out. They have to be given their appropriate share. Yes, I mean, all, all that is going to be based on. Um, I don't know, brothers get their shares? No, no, brothers won't get shares. The children will get the shares, uh, his spouse will get a share, uh, his parents will get a share, but not his brothers. So you, I mean, Jeremy, that's what happens. People who try to, like yesterday, this question was coming, that did come up with that, can I cut my wife out of the picture? Can I cut my children out of the picture? And no, you cannot. Because they are, by Quran, they're going to be 
they are going to be here. You know. So you cannot, and one thing in the will is that you have to make it very precise. So. Yeah, it's just back home. Oh, yeah. Yes. 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 And she's a provider and for sure it's not like this the reason why it's designated is on the is on the you know the, the I guess the assumption is that the son is going to be a provider he's going to be a provider that's why the son is it's not about men and women it's not it's not preference on No, you got some, Chef. You have something? No, 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 no. I just I mean, I just want to. Um, what do you think so far? Yeah, I like, I like, people have come with me. I like the way they approach the 
So he goes, are you already considered as limited or not? And I told him, I said, pretty much, yeah, because, I mean, it's once the machine, so I said that pretty much when the machine is the one that's inhaling it, so until that point. I asked all the Muftis I've asked. Yeah. Because yeah, so yeah. I used to get that. My mom went to that. She was very interested. So, like, what do you do? I was like, look, you know, I know my fault. That's almost the point at that point. It's just, yeah. you can't live on your own. You're not killing the person. Yeah, yeah. Take them off the machine. They're meant to live. They'll live without it. This happened in our community also. There was a kid who was hurt, and there was a six-year-old kid who was living outside of the and his parents were very active. So that happened, and so some doctors came there and because as soon as they take him off the machine, that's when they kind of dead. So, 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 so one guy came to me and said that is that what the time is, or is it some other time? Yeah. So I said that really it's, uh, it's not that it's not the same time for that. Maybe try to go back to hospital and correct time. It doesn't really matter anyway. I mean, what's going to do with time? What's going to do with time anyway? Right. You know, the only time you remember is what they keep So you remember that. Time doesn't matter whether it's one hour or two hours or... Because the night before he was already brain dead. And they were just keeping the machine just, just, you know, hoping for a miracle to happen. I'm going to give him this slide. So 4.30. Also, break at 4.20? Jeremy, it's happened that it takes some time to get everything ready. Shall I will be getting started? It's very warm in here. Can we turn the fan on? Can we turn the fans off? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Alright, just like four. Alright, there's this one. Nothing too heavy yet, right? It's okay so far, right? Start getting into Afik and stuff like that. That's fine. So if we can have everyone back inside themselves so we can get started. Sorry if the first session was a little lengthy. So let's continue, inshallah. Alright, so we've gone over some of the things that you need to do during the pregnancy. 
the fiqhi aspect of it and also some of the things you can do to benefit uh, the child, inshallah, before the child is born. Alright, so now let's go ahead and let's get to the time of birth. That's where most of the questions usually come up. Alright, the time of birth. Number one, remember your dua is mustajab. Okay, that's the first thing. Remember your dua is mustajab. So try to use your, try to force yourself to pray at that moment. I can't even imagine how a woman would try at that moment during delivery. But try your best. I mean, if you can squeeze in a dua while you're delivering, then inshallah ta'ala, it's a good one. Don't make dua against your husband while you're delivering. <laughs> Might be a little tempting at that moment. Alright? Um, but no, again, this is what Anawi rahimahullah was saying, is that the more you're pushed, obviously what Rasulullah informed us, that the tougher the time, the more precious the dua. So you try your best at that time. You had a question about that? Uh, well, if the husband remind you, if the husbands, so husbands, don't faint, don't pass out, don't get scared, alright? Inshallah, she'll go back to being normal, she won't always scream at you that way, and she didn't mean it, everything that she said. Just remind her to make dua, okay? Remind her to make dua. Also, if the husband wore the dua at that time, because at that moment of pain, very hard to, you know, So, word the dua also. It's a good one. Obviously. Alright, so the time of birth. So obviously the time of birth, Rasulullah told us that every time the child is born, um, that shaytan, you know, the child is, is poked, if you will, by shaytan. In the sense that the shaytan, the shaytan is already declaring his, his, uh, his enmity for that child, even when the child is just born. And obviously, when, whenever we're approached by the shaytan, when we feel thoughts of the shaytan, we say, A'udhu billahi min shaytan rajim. And actually, Rasulullah said, for that reason, the mother of Maryam, when she made the dua, and she said, That I seek refuge in you from the shaytan for my, for my daughter and for her offspring, that whenever she made dua for her child and for the offspring of that child, that her dua was so sincere, was so genuine, that Allah Azzawajal answered Hinda bit Fakud anha's dua. And Maryam and Isa were born not crying. And not because there was something wrong with them, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them so much peace that when they were born, they were not crying. Now obviously you'd be very scared if your baby's born not crying. But with them, because of the peace that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to them, because of that dua of the mother. So obviously you're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as you know Imam al-Zai rahimahullah. He said something that's very important. He said transferring realms is always hard. Going from one world to another. Right? And he likened it very beautifully, you know, to the way that a person would go from dunya to barzakh, to the, to the realm of death. Right? No matter how good you are, there's still, you know, you can't, you can't really know everything that you're going to expect. It's a totally different realm. It's a totally different world. And that's why it's traumatizing. It's traumatizing in its nature. But Allah makes it easier for the believer. And being raised from barzakh to the world of the akhirah is traumatizing. You know, it's, you know, the people that would have been punished their entire lives in the barzakh, in that realm of death, would say, Ya wayna who woke us up from our sleep? So it's traumatizing. You know, it's because they're seeing a whole other world. So you're going from one world to another and it's naturally very traumatizing. So you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easy for you. Right? To make it easy for you. And you make dua for your children also that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it a smooth, uh, a smooth delivery. 
And Abdullah bin Abbas he says, when Allah says in the Quran, Inna Hadaynahu Sabid, we guided him to the path. Inna Shakiran wa Inna Kafura, either he'll be grateful or he'll be, or, or he'll be ungrateful. He said it's literal in, in the sense that literally Allah guided you out of your mother's womb. And subhanAllah, when you study medicine, I, I haven't studied medicine, but I've heard this frequently said. People who study medicine, they just say, SubhanAllah, how do you not believe in Allah when you study this stuff? All the processes, everything that's going going you know, into that. This sophisticated creation, and then everything that can go wrong at birth, and still the baby is born. Right? So Allah says, Inna hadaynahu sabid. Allah makes it easy for you. He guides you that path. And He guides you the path of Islam also. So it's it's in the literal sense, as in coming out of your mother's womb. And it's also in the sense, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows you the clear path. He guides you to the clear path. And you can either be grateful or ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a result. So a lot of things can happen at that moment. It's important to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easy for the child. And that's why the first thing that you do when the child comes out is what? Right away. Adhan. Okay? Now, adhan very softly. Alright? Don't scream at the child. And you <laughs> don't try to, you know, don't try to sound like the mu'adhan at the haram. Start going, Allah, Akbar Allah. You don't do that. Okay? But subhanAllah, you take the child and you soothe it with the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and this is narrated by Abu Rafi in the, in the hadith in, in Sunan Abi Dawood, the authentic hadith that I saw when Al-Hasan radiallahu anhu was born, Hassan ibn Ali to Fatima radiallahu anha, the Prophet ﷺ took Al-Hasan and he uttered the adhan in his right ear. So he, he quietly made the adhan in his right ear in a soft, soothing voice. Okay? Not in a very loud voice. So the adhan is made in the right ear. Although there is no authentic hadith about the iqamah in the left ear, many of the scholars said you also do the iqamah in the left ear. Okay? So there is no sahih hadith per se, but, but it is many, many of the scholars said you do the adhan in the right ear and then you'll turn and you'll do adhan into the left ear. But try to do that, brothers in particular, hopefully you're not passed out by them. Try to do that right away. Okay? Just take the child. It's a very touching moment. It's really, it's beautiful, subhanAllah. And wallahi, I'm not lying, when my daughter was born, that was the only time she wasn't crying. It was like the first, in the first two hours of her birth, when I did adhan in her ear, she just got quiet. She just, what's going on here? Then she went back to crying. You know? <laughs> and obviously the way that they treat the baby, if those of you who haven't seen your, you know, the way they treat the baby in the hospital, it's like, it's like being at a factory or something like that, right? It's just like, <laughs> it's like whatever, you know. <laughs> they're not they're not really paying attention to you're like, are you are you sure that's okay? You know? <laughs> it's like they're packaging cheese or something like that. Alright? But they're packaging a baby. But subhanAllah it soothes the baby. Remind them of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So doing the adhan in the right ear in a soft voice, don't terrify the child from the very start. And Imam Hassan al-Basi rahimahullah, this is also attributed to Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he said, Look at how powerful this is. You come into this world with adhan but no salah. Right? You come into this world with adhan but no salah. You leave this world with salah but no adhan. Right? So the time of your life is like the time between salah, between adhan and salah. It's just a short period of time. The time of your life is just like, like the time between adhan and salah. So you have to make the best use of it. But it's very powerful. We come in with adhan, we leave with salah. Okay? So try to do that right away. And we find, you know, at this at these moments, and this is where I said, you know, every time one of my friends would have a child, they get like 20, 30 text messages. What do we do now? What do we do now? What do we do now? Because there's so many nice sunnah that you can extract blessings from your child at that time. 
And we saw the Sahaba had this keenness, right? They would take their children uh, to the Prophet right away. So um, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, he said, as soon as I had my son Ibrahim, we ran to the Prophet um, Anas says about his mother, Anas ibn Malik says his mother, Umm Sulaim, when she had a son named Abdullah, immediately requested Rasulullah Because they wanted to get the most out of the pregnancy. They wanted to make this the best. They wanted to start off on the right you know, on, on the right foot as much as they possibly um, could. And, you know, we find some narrations in that regard. One of them is that when the Muslims made hijrah, when the Muslims made hijrah, the, some of the people in Medina, some of, particularly the Jewish tribes in Medina, the ones that were at, at, you know, at war with the Muslims, not the ones that were at peace with the Muslims, particularly some of the Jews from Banu Quraida, some of the Jews from Medina were on good terms with the Muslims, for those who don't know. All right? Particularly some of them from Banu Quraida. They said that we placed a spell on the Muslims and no one's going to have kids here. So no one's going to be able to have kids. And so in the first few months, some of the Muslims believed that, unfortunately. So there were a few miscarriages here and there. And so some of the Muslims started to think they were cursed. Some of them thought there was actually a spell on them. And then there was a child that was born. Six months after Hijrah. Does anyone know who that child was? Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhu. First child born in Medina after Hijrah. Who are his parents? Obviously as Zubayr and who else? Asma bint Abi Bakr radiallahu anha wa radiallahu an abiha. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when that happened, he took Abdullah ibn Zubayr and he literally paraded him around the streets in Medina and started and was chanting Allahu Akbar. Right? Because it showed that the, that the spell wasn't there. And some of the Muslims didn't believe it was because of the spell. They just thought because it was a different climate. You know, they all of a sudden came from a very dry land to a very... They thought it was a different climate that it would be hard for them to have children. So that obviously um, disproved that idea that there was a spell. And Asma radiallahu anha says that we then brought Abdullah ibn Zubayr to the Prophet and we placed him on his lap. And the Prophet asked for a date and Rasulullah he chewed that date uh, and he had some saliva so he chewed that date with his own saliva and then he rubbed the chewed date on the roof of the mouth of Abdullah ibn Zubayr so he chewed some of, a piece of date and he put it on the mouth of Abdullah, of Abdullah ibn Zubayr he rubbed the date on the roof of the mouth of Abdullah ibn Zubayr and that was the first child to be born to Islam so this is called tahniq Tahnik. Tahnik, tahannuk, is whenever you take the date, you chew the date, and you rub the date on the roof of the mouth of the child. A more explicit hadith is from Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu that um, I went to the Prophet with, with my brother, his stepbrother was Abdullah ibn Abi Talha, was his stepbrother. Okay? His mom, Umm Sulaim, had uh, Abdullah. And again, so we said that the Prophet ﷺ was the first one to be introduced to Abdullah. So they took Abdullah to the Prophet ﷺ, and Rasulullah ﷺ was outside, you know, tending to a camel. And Rasulullah ﷺ, you know, when, whenever he was requested to come, he came and he held the baby. And he said to me, do you have any dates with you? And I said, yes, and I handed them to him. And Rasulullah ﷺ, he moistened them with his tongue. He opened the child's mouth and he rubbed the, the date on the top of the child's mouth and the baby started to laugh so the baby was happy Abdullah was happy so he, he started to smile and he says Rasulullah smiled so widely 
that the back of his teeth showed. So Rasulullah was happy and Rasulullah he said, Look at the love that the Ansar have for dates. Right? Because the Ansar lived around dates. You know, mashallah, Medina has really good dates. You haven't eaten real dates until you go to Medina. Okay, the ones that we have here, even California, for those of you that live in California and stuff like that, not real dates. All right, but the, Subhanallah. So the Prophet ﷺ was happy, and then he said, "Was Abdullah?" He named him Abdullah. So the Prophet ﷺ actually named this child Abdullah. The point is, again, um, you don't have to necessarily chew the dates, okay? But you make a piece of date soft. Don't sit there and try to stuff a big majul date in the child's mouth and choke him. Alright, you take a piece of date, you make it soft, okay, you chew on it, and you rub it on the roof of the mouth. This is following the sunnah. And the scholar said anything sweet can work as a replacement. Alright, but let me, let me, please, let me just uh, talk about that for a little bit. Alright, you don't put baklawa or rasmalai or anything like that in the child's mouth. Anything sweet, they said in the absence of dates, mashallah, there are dates everywhere. But what this does is, by the way, there's medical research, mashallah, that has shown that this actually stimulates the child's immune system. Putting that the little piece of date in the child's system, that sugar, the little bit of sugar, it actually stimulates their system. So it's actually good for them. Um, now, traditionally speaking, some of the scholars said, if you don't have dates, what do you use? Honey. But that's actually a terrible idea. And it's not haram to say that because it's not necessarily from the sunnah. Some of the scholars just thought that naturally, if you're not going to use dates, then you use um, honey, but there's actually there's actually been plenty of study and it's confirmed that um, using honey can actually uh, can actually hurt the child very much if you give the child honey within the first year, okay, of the child's life. Um, it's called infant botulism, I think it is. B o t u l i s m. Is that how you pronounce it? Botulism with the ch there. Okay, so you shouldn't put honey. Even if you read in some of the traditional books, they use honey. If you don't have dates, don't put honey there. Okay, and also for the woman, the woman. Um, what did Allah Subhanahu wa Taala say to Maryam? Right, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gave her dates and warm water. Right, right. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gave her dates and warm water, so we can take from that that it's good for the woman also. And by the way, again, medical research has shown that it replenishes the woman. You know, it calms her down. It, it subhanAllah replenishes her. Dates are an amazing. Uh, they're, they just have amazing nutritional value. Dates have amazing nutritional value. So it's good to replenish the woman at that point with dates and drinking water. Alright, so that's what you're going to do right away. Now the next thing is obviously naming the child. Okay, naming the child. I'm going to offend some people when I get to naming the child because some people might have some of the names that I'm saying that you should not name your child. Alright, so please, if, if I see everyone look around, and look at one person like la hawla wa la I'm never going to call you by your name again. That's not my intention. My intention is to talk about what's the, what are the best names to give. Okay, so what, what, how do you name your child? What's the process of naming your child? Uh, first question is when do you name your child? Um, so traditionally, you know, the ulama used to say the seventh day is the time that you name the child. So the, the best time. Because Rasulullah named Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein on the seventh day. Okay, on the same day of their aqiqah, the Prophet ﷺ named Al-Hasan al-Hussain. So some of them said the seventh day, but that doesn't that doesn't mean it's set in stone because in Sahih Muslim, Anas ibn Malik radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, 
He said that Rasulullah said, A boy was born to me last night, Ibrahim, and I named him Ibrahim. So he was born last night. So the Prophet obviously named him before seven days. So the, the only reason I'm mentioning that is because you can name them at any time. All right, in our society in particular, it might be kind of awkward to have just a baby without a name for the first seven days. You can name them even before the child is born. That's okay. All right, but the Prophet named the child um, one night later. Now, what are some of the guidelines for choosing the name? All right, first and foremost, all names are permissible unless something is objectionable about them. It's important to understand that. So you can choose to name your child anything that's not objectionable. But when we're talking about the best names, the best names... The best names to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you're having a son, obviously, are what? Abdullah and Abdurrahman. Rasulullah said, Ahabdul Asma, the most beloved names to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, are Abdullah and Abdurrahman. And he actually said Abdurrahman and Abdullah. And, well, we'll talk about what the Prophet did. Allahu alam. But when Umar ibn Khattab heard that from the Prophet, he named three of his sons Abdurrahman. So he had Abdullah ibn Umar. Then he named three of them, Abdurrahman al-Kabir, Abdurrahman al-Sagir, Abdurrahman al-Wasat. He had the, the big one, the middle one, and the small one. Okay. SubhanAllah, that just shows you their keenness to follow the sunnah. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, you know, um, I don't want to, actually, I'm not going to, I have to be very careful with this. A sister that I know, okay, uh, wanted to name her child, her daughter Fatima. And whenever she wanted to do that, her relatives, Hijabi, Shibabi, they said, that's an old name, you know, why don't you name them something new, like flavor to it, right? It's like, it's the daughter of the Prophet, right? The, the keenness to follow the Sunnah. I'm telling you, and that's why, by the way, if you go to the Middle East now, very few people are now naming their daughters and their sons after Sahaba and Sahabiyat and stuff like that. It's very rare now. It really is now. It's very rare. It's not haram to name them other things, but it's like looked down upon. Okay, why are you doing the same old thing over and over again? Okay, but look at the Sahaba's keenness to follow the Sunnah. Umar al-Khattab named three of his kids um, Abdurrahman. So that's the first thing. There's a, there's another category of names which is the Abd of anything, the Ibad of anything, or Amma, right? Amatullah or so on and so forth. There's a, a weak hadith that the Prophet said that any of the names that have Ubudiyah in them are, are beloved names, are the best of names. Okay, it's a weak hadith, but some of the scholars still acted upon that. They said it's good to name your child. Abdul something, you know, an established name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So having ubudiyah there, okay, having the servitude of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala denoted in there. These are just good names. Again, the third category is the names of prophets and messengers. Imam al-Qayyim is the one who's giving these categories. Okay, Rasulullah actually said, anbiya. Name, your, name yourselves with the names of the prophets. Okay? So for example, what did the Prophet name his son? Ibrahim. And you asked about that question about why didn't he name his kids that? When did the Prophet ﷺ have most of his kids? Before Wahi. Ibrahim was the only one after Wahi. And Rasulullah ﷺ named him after his father Ibrahim. And the Prophet ﷺ loved Ibrahim ﷺ. It was his, his father. There was a very close relationship, obviously. No one is like the, more like the Prophet ﷺ than Ibrahim ﷺ. He looks like him. SubhanAllah. Rasulullah ﷺ looks like Ibrahim ﷺ. So he was even created with his same physical appearance almost. When he saw him, he was shocked. When he saw him in the Mi'raj, he looked like him. He resembled him. SubhanAllah. And there's no greater prophet after Rasulullah than Ibrahim Okay? Abu al-Anbiya, the father of the prophets. Alright? So he said, name your children after the Anbiya. And of course, the fourth category is the names of righteous people. It's, it's, it's good to name your children after righteous people. 
whether they're Sahaba or even, you know, even some of the modern day righteous people that we have, or you see someone who has some, some righteousness in them and you want to name your children after them. That's, that's really, that's a nice thing to do. Okay, it's, it's a beautiful thing to do. A lot of times people ask me why I name my daughter May. Right, M A Y, and people think I was just trying to cop out. You know, I didn't want my daughter to have too much of an Arabic name so she could blend in. You know, that's why I named her May. I named her that after my mother. I thought my mother was righteous. I named her after my mother. You know, I thought it's a righteous woman. So you name after righteous people. If you know righteous people, if you the names of the Sahaba fall in that category, it's good to name after them. Right? It's good to name after them. I forgot who it was. I think. Az-Zubair Yes, Az-Zubair radiallahu anhu was talking about him and Talha radiallahu anhu So Az-Zubair said Talha named all of his kids after prophets I named all of my kids after shuhada All of the kids of Az-Zubair were named after shuhada So Abdullah ibn Az-Zubair was named after Abdullah ibn Jahsh Right? Mus'ab ibn Az-Zubair Mus'ab ibn Umair Right? He named all of his kids after shuhada So you want to name your kids after um, righteous people. And then again, names with good meanings. Okay, names with good meanings that you want your kids to have, obviously. Now, obviously, you know, sometimes people are like, you know, I name my kid, um, I name my kid a good name, like I name my kid, what's, what's one of those, subhanAllah, like, there's sometimes people have, have the opposite character of their name, right? <laughs> right? I, I name my kid like, you know, something that has, you know, denotes leniency, for example. He's just a crazy, angry bully, you know, what happened? Right? And Imam al-Qayyim said, it's not the name that makes the child, but it's the intention behind the name when you give them that name. Think about that. I intend, I'm naming my child this name because I want them to have those characteristics. You're making dua by naming your child. You're naming the child as a dua because you want them to have those characteristics. Right? And that's why, for example, the name Muhammad, okay, now, I, I know that <laughs> almost everyone now from the subcontinent is named Muhammad. You know, it's like, but it's really, and you know what's sad is that in, in some countries in the Middle East, Muhammad is like the way that you, you degrade someone, right? Muhammad, hey Muhammad, you don't know someone's name, Muhammad, 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 right? You call someone Muhammad, it's like kind of belittling the name in a way, right? But Muhammad, you're naming after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, beautiful name. Any, how many of you know Imam al-Ghazali's name? You know what Imam al-Ghazali's name was? It was Abu Hamid, right? That was his kunya. Muhammad, his, his name was Muhammad, Ibn Muhammad, Ibn Muhammad, Ibn Muhammad, Ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali. Five Muhammads in his name. <laughs> so it's beautiful. Naming after the prophets, naming with good names. Uh, obviously you should avoid names with bad meanings. Okay? Names with bad meanings. Unfortunately, people think if it's in the Quran that it's a good name. No, that's not the case. Because there's sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking bad about someone. You know, and we have people named Zania sometimes, right? Adulterous. You see like some terrible names. I've met people that have the worst names. Like, why would you do that to your children? You know, name them after bad names. So don't, you know, don't just name them any Arabic word that you can find and say, you know, I saw it in the Quran. Study the meaning of the name first. Make sure you don't name your kids with bad meanings. Uh, some of the names, you know, when I was living in the Khalid, some of the names that I used to see over there, and even in, in Palestine, by the way, even some of the names are just like really, really bad names. Like they have bad meanings. Like you have people like that are named like angry and Qutban and like Zalan, and you know, you, you have all kinds of names. It's like, what? Why? Why would you do that? Like I understand if it's the tribe name, but if you're naming your your kid that, why are you going to name him that? Right? So anyway, um, good good meanings. 
Also, names which are exclusive to the disbelievers. Exclusive to the disbelievers should not be used. So, you know, things that are that are biblical, but not from the Quran, not from the Sunnah. They're not names of prophets, for example. Things that are that are exclusive to them. Okay. So you can't, you shouldn't name your kid, for example, Christian. It's obvious, right? You wouldn't name your kid Christian, okay? Or you wouldn't name your kid Paul, all right? Those are things, names that are exclusive um, to them. Okay, and names which only belong to Allah subhanahu wa taala and cannot even be used as an attribute. So you can't. I've seen some people name Rahman. It's haram to name your child Rahman. Only Allah can be Rahman. Can you name someone Kareem? Yeah, because a person can be generous. A person can be Kareem, but a person can't be Al Kareem. Okay, you can't name your kid Qahir. Okay, uh, the subduer Al Alim. Mutakabbir. You don't want to name your kid as Mutakabbir because pride with the human being denotes a bad thing. Right? Muhaymin, um, Quddus. So there are some names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are specific to him, that are limited only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and even their attributes are not given to human beings. They're not to be used for human beings. Um, also, names which, names which denote enslavement to anything other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? So we still find people named Abdul Nabi, for example. Right? Or Abdul something else. Okay? Abdul anything but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, is not allowed. Okay? And names which are excessive in praise. Excessive in praise. So for example, Rasulullah saw a girl's name who was Barra. Not Barra like outside. Barra means free of sin. And Rasulullah changed her name to Zainab. Okay? Um, also, and I know this one is this one might be a little offensive. And Imam Nawi rahimahullah, he used to, his name was Muhyiddin. He hated that name. He refused for people to call him Muhyiddin. In fact, he said when he was dying, I forgive, I will forgive anyone for any any wrong they've done to me. But those who call me Muhyiddin, I don't forgive them. Muhyiddin means the one who gives life to the deen. He said, when was the deen dead? <laughs> so he didn't like the name Muhyiddin for himself. He considered it bad for himself, right? So. You know, change it to like Mo or something like that. I'd say change it in that situation. But anything, you know, that has the deen in it. Like I've, I've met people named like Sayyidul Khalq and Khairul Bashar and like stuff like that. Like the best of men, the, the master of creation. Like we should not go overboard in praise. And obviously when you follow the Sahaba, um, when you follow the Sahaba, you do well with that anyway. All right. Now the next thing in regards to naming, um, the middle name, the middle name should be the father's name. Why? Allah says, اَدْعُوهُمْ لِأَبَائِهِمْ هُوَ أَقْصَطُ عَنْدَ اللَّهِ And Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah Al-Ahzab, right? اَدْعُوهُمْ لِأَبَائِهِمْ Surah Al-Ahzab, right? Call them by, their, by the names of their fathers, that is more just to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So obviously we don't live in a society where it's been this, been that, been this, been that. You don't put ben or bint and stuff like that. You have the last name which is equivalent to the qabila name if you will. The name of the tribe, it's the name of the family. But it's good. I'm not saying it's fault. I'm saying it's good to then, just to fulfill that tradition, calling by the names of the fathers. It's good to make that the middle name then. The middle name, it's best to make that the father's name in that regard. Alright? Now once you have the child... If you want to congratulate someone who has had a child. And by the way, with the, anything with, with deen in it, it's not haram. It's not haram. I'm saying some of the scholars did not like that. So for example, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, what's his name? Taqiyuddin. He said that, I personally, I'm not a fan of the name. He said that I don't want to, I wouldn't change it because it's not haram and my mother named me that. Okay, so it's not that, you know, 
So again, like if you're named Dean, something with Dean at the end, sometimes it can be excessive. Sometimes it can be excessive. Not always. But whenever it's like you are the one, you are the nobility of the Dean, right? Salaf al-Deen or Muhyiddin, those types of things. Don't change your name, okay? But at the same time, if you're naming your kids, some of the scholars dislike that. That's all I was saying with that, right? Now, if you want to welcome a child, if you want to congratulate someone who's had a child, and I recommend to everyone, and I do this in every class that I teach, to have the book, Fortress of the Muslim, Hislam Muslim. It's the authentic du'as for every single situation in your life, for most situations in your life. It's a very good book to have. There's an app for it. You can have it on your iPhone and now on your Joy. Okay? Um, so download it, read it, or go to Google if you want to be... If you, Google, going to Google is traditional now. <laughs> go to Google and read the du'a if you need to from Fortress of the Muslim. But the du'a of welcoming a child properly, as Nawi rahimahullah writes down in Kitab al-Afqaq, the authentic hadith, Barakallahu laka fil mawubi lak wa shakarta al-wahib wa balagha ashudda wa ruziqta birra. May Allah bless you with his gift to you and may the receiver give thanks and reach the maturity of years and be granted piety. And the response to that is Barakallahu lak, baraka alayk, wa jazakallahu khayran, wa razaqatallahu mithlah, wa ajza la thawabak. May Allah bless you and shower his blessings upon you. It's a tongue twister, I'm sorry. And may, may he reward you well and bestow upon you his like and reward you with open hands. So, so it's an authentic hadith. Just get it from Fortress of the Muslim if you have to. And if you don't know what to say, just say Jazakallah khairan when someone tells you congratulations. At least you're doing that part. Um, also, generally speaking, making dua for the child. Um, I found this very significant. There's a hadith from Mu'awid Muqurra. It's not a hadith, it's... it's but it is narrated in Bukhari's book of manners, Adab. Uh, he narrates that Muawiyah says that when my son Ilyas was born, I invited several of the Sahaba to a feast and I fed them. And then after that, um, they prayed for me and my son. They made dua for me and my son. So the Sahaba made dua for me and my son. And I said, you have prayed and may Allah bless you for your prayers. Now I am going to pray. فَقُولُوا آمين. So say Ameen. And he said, Then I made dua for my son. I prayed for his deen, for his aqal, for his mind, and so on. And the Sahaba said, Ameen. So it's a very nice thing that the people would make dua for the child. Okay? So even in these gatherings and things of that sort, your baby shower, that'll be after the pregnancy, so it's not really a baby shower, right? Whatever it may be. Make dua for the child. Okay? Use it as an opportunity to make dua for a child. Alright. Any questions on that? Before I go to circumcision, circumcision will make you all forget everything I just talked about. Yeah. After the name of the malaika, the names of the angels. Yeah. So you should not. You, yeah. Naming a daughter Malak would not would not be something that's. I'm not saying haram, but it's definitely under dislike. After the names of the malaika, Imam al-Qayyim said some of the scholars had reservations with that because none of the Sahaba named their kids like Jibreel and stuff like that. Some of the Sahaba didn't. None of the Sahaba did it, so he said perhaps they didn't like to name after an angel. Perhaps, but it's not haram. Okay. Yeah. I have a question. forget to give the date. If you forget what? forget to give them the date before you didn't know about it. <laughs> if you forgot to give them a date, just go home and like take a date and corner them and stuff it in their mouth. And say we're doing the sunnah now. <laughs> no, so it, it's just sunnah. It's not, you don't have to do anything. Yeah, yeah. 
Don't put the date in their mouth entirely. Just let them taste the date. Uh, sister. Yes, sister. Yeah, go. Uh, I had a question. What if you have a name uh, from someone in Quran and you have it in Arabic, but then in English it's a different name? Is it okay to call them Yeah, sure. So calling Abraham, for example, yeah, right? Abraham or you know, Abraham is in the Quran. One of the ways of reading, وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ Abraham in Shu'bah, and some of, so Abraham's in the Quran. It doesn't matter in what dialect you say the name. Yes, you can name. In fact, you can name them purely. You could choose to name your kids in any name whatsoever. And in fact, by the way, when when converts come to Islam, like your name is Sister Nicole, right? When converts come to Islam, I tell them it's better not to change your name because it takes away the foreign aspect of, of Islam. Rasulullah Sallallahu didn't change Sahaba's names unless they were objectionable when they became Muslim. What about yeah. like Eve? Like Eve? That's fine. And her name is Hawa. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. You can name the English the English name. You can do that. You can absolutely name them by the English name of the Prophet. Yes. <laughs> Should you wait for the baby to be washed? I don't know. I, I just I I like rushed. It's like let me do it that in her ear. The sooner the better. It's not a requirement that you have to do with like right when it's coming fresh out of the stomach and that kind of stuff. But um, the sooner the better. Sisters, yes. So um, traditionally, I guess it's important to name the family of Sayyid. Well, the naming of Sayyid is deceiving because it. Everybody is a Sayyid, and it's, it's supposed to mean that you're a descendant of the Prophet right? That's why people do Sayyid, but I, I personally doubt that everyone named Sayyid is a descendant of the Prophet But um, <laughs> it's okay. Make your parents happy. It's all right. You don't have to. Just do what you got to do. I, I personally tell you know, it's good to name your kids after your parents, too. It really, subhanAllah, makes them really happy when you do that. If there's nothing wrong with your parents' names. It's good to name your kids after your parents, too. Brother Munir, last question, and then go back to talk. Knowing the gender before the baby is born? No, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I'm personally one of those people, I, I told my wife, I was like, look, I don't want to wait a day later. When we know when the gender is able to be determined, I want to know. I want to prepare myself mentally. So, alhamdulillah, we knew the gender very early. All right, I'm going to go back to the topic. Now we go into circumcision. The reason why I'm not going to give a break now is because Asr is at 4.30, so we're going to break at like 4.20, 4.25 anyway. Are you guys okay if we continue, or do you want a five-minute break? Okay, you guys are okay if we continue, right? All right, circumcision. It's a tense topic, okay? Um, number one, we'll talk, circumcision for boys is between sunnah and fard. Either sunnah or fard, according to the scholars. It's either recommended or mandatory, Okay. Um, Ibrahim السلام, as we know was the one who was given the sunnah Ibrahim السلام, and this is very in Bukhari and Muslim circumcised at the age of 80 and that's why an Imam Ahmad for example said that it is fault. okay that it was Imam Ahmad's opinion that it was fault, and he he was the only one that held that, that opinion from the four Imams Ibn Abbas had a saying that was very 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 like very extreme and not extreme in the sense like we're calling him when Iyad Billah you know, an extremist or something of that sort, but the ulama considered it very exaggerated. He said that if a person is not circumcised and there's no salah and no hajj for them. So he went to, but they said he was exaggerating the importance of it. Why? Because 
tahara is obviously an issue if a person purity is an issue if a boy is not circumcised, right? So circumcision is done for tahara. Rasulullah included it in the categories of um, tahara. So Imam Ahmad rahimahullah didn't say that, but he, but he quoted Ibn Abbas on that too, just to say that he thinks it's fault, it was mandatory. And he said, but, so even Imam Ahmad who considered it fault, he said if an adult fears for themselves, they don't have to do it. If an adult fears for themselves. Okay, they don't have to do it at that point. Alright, the point is tahara, purity, and good hygiene. Okay, that's the point of the circumcision. Okay, because when there's no circumcision, and by the way, it's very, it's, it's not hygienic at all. Even totally secular research has shown that it's not hygienic at all when you don't do circumcision. You know, you're talking about urine and filth and all those types of things. Um, you know, not being, not being prevented effectively. Alright, so for the boys, it is sunnah mu'akkadah, according to the majority. I was just mentioning Imam Ahmed's opinion just to show you how emphasized it is. There's a brother who became, Sheikh Muhammad al-Arifi was telling a story. He said that there was a brother, who, someone who became Muslim. And as soon as he became Muslim, there were you know, some foreign students and they told him right away, we got to go get you circumcised tomorrow. He's like, are you crazy? He's like, tomorrow, you know, first thing in the morning, you have to go get circumcised. And he said, I don't want to be Muslim then. He said that they said to him then, then if you go to a Muslim country, we're going to cut your head off. So he said, what kind of deen do you have that if you enter it or you leave it, something's getting cut off? Like, what is that? What is it about your religion? <laughs> so, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that is sunnah mu'akkada according to most of the scholars. Farud, according to Ahmad rahimahullah. Now, many scholars said the circumcision should not be delayed beyond seven days. Okay? Should not be delayed beyond, beyond seven days. It's on the basis of a weak hadith. In that weak hadith, please don't trip over the camera, please don't trip over the camera. Alhamdulillah, there's tape there. Alright, it's on the basis of a weak hadith that Rasulullah circumcised Al-Hasan al Hussein when they were seven days old. The hadith is not authentic, but some of the scholars said that it's best. Okay. Um, Imam ibn Qudama rahimahullah, he said that Ahmad said that even though you don't have to, there's nothing that textually binds you to circumcise a child before seven days, he said the earlier the better because it's easier on them. So the earlier you can do the circumcision, you don't have to wait till seven days. The earlier the better. Obviously we know that it's less painful in that regard. Um, and now we rahimahullah said that the time when it becomes obligatory is after puberty. When it becomes obligatory. At that point, to him, again, it was it's necessary. Um, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, who was a Hanbali, who follows the school of Imam Ahmad, he said that it's obligatory before puberty because the obligation is upon the guardian, not the child. So if a person reached puberty and it wasn't done, then they, at that point, have the choice, if you will, if they fear for themselves and things of that sort. Alright? Now, I want to talk about female circumcision for a moment. Why? Because there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding it. Not because I'm encouraging it in any way whatsoever. But because of our ignorance on the topic, Islamophobes have capitalized on our ignorance of our own text in regards to female circumcision, particularly my Sheikh, Sheikh Hatim Hajj, who is a practicing physician, one of the highest ranked physicians um, in this country, also a Mufti, a PhD in Sharia. Um, SubhanAllah, because, you know, Pamela Geller and her group actually targeted him and said that he, he, was, he was a pediatrician, that he supports uh, female genital mutilation. And the Muslims didn't stand up for him. He never said that. He did not support it at all. He covered the, the text which talks about female circumcision and what it means in Sharia. And because of that, it cost him his job and his medical license. Okay? So it's important for us to know. And the Islamophobes, you know, and when I posted that, by the way, I, I posted on Facebook, I remember I was getting all these comments about, you know, oh, we're against that anyway. You know, who does he think he is in talking about that? 
As far as what female circumcision means, now first and foremost, understand female genital mutilation is haram. No doubt about that. Okay? So, as far as female circumcision is concerned, within the books of fiqh, it is between mubah, allowed, and sunnah, mustahab. Alright? Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani radiallahu anhu, rahimahullah, he said that there's all of the hadith that talk about it are weak. So there's no strong hadith about it. Um, and most of the scholars considered circumcision sunnah for the men only, and they considered it allowed for women. Now, what the Prophet ﷺ did allow, and what would be considered female circumcision for the Prophet ﷺ, is not removing anything from the clitoris itself, but rather from the foreskin. And the Prophet ﷺ made that very clear. Therefore, it does not, it's not mutilation. It did not harm, it does not harm the woman at all. It does not harm the girl at all. Okay? And in fact, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they wrote, when they wrote on the topic from their journal, they said that this, which is called the ritual nick, the ritual nick, which is trimming from the skin, but not from the clitoris itself, they said that it's no more of an alteration than ear piercing. It doesn't hurt the person at all. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ allowed. The Prophet ﷺ did not allow any form of mutilation or taking from it itself. And in fact, the reason why this becomes, this is predominant in one method. It's predominant in the Shafi'i method. Not because Imam Shafi'i held this opinion, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Okay? Which is actual genital mutilation. It happens in North Africa and it's predominant in his method. It's because it was a, it was a custom from the pharaohs. Okay? It was, it's pharaonic custom to actually remove female genital mutilation. And when the school of an Imam Shafi'i developed, Obviously, sometimes the deen doesn't alter the custom. The custom alters the deen. So the custom took what Imam al-Shafi'i said, which was that was sunnah, to do the ritual nik, and they applied it to that. And that's why you have a problem, a legitimate problem, which we do speak out against, of female genital mutilation in the Middle East, particularly in North Africa in some areas. Okay? But it's not from the deen. has nothing to do with Islam. It's not sunnah. It's not even mubah, genital mutilation. And it's... And, it's, and actually... Even the circumcision itself, which is the ritual nick, is just mubah. So you don't have to try to do it in America in any way whatsoever. All right. So just for Islamophobes, if someone asks you about that. I know it's not even an issue here because no one does that over here anyway. Um, all right. Well, we do have some viewers from the Middle East. Though. All right. Now, the aqiqah. Fard or sunnah? Aqiqah. Okay. The majority says sunnah. Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah, says it's mandatory. Because Rasulullah said the child is rahina, is a captive until the aqiqah is performed. Okay, which means that all the blessings that come with the child are held, as the scholar said, until the aqiqah is performed. The aqiqah is, is necessary. Most of the scholars said sunnah mu'akkadah. Um, Imam Ahmad, Hassan al-Basri, and Ata, they said even if you're an old man and it wasn't done for you, they said we've known some of the salaf who did it for themselves. They just did aqiqah for themselves just to do it for themselves. Um, Samurat Nujundab, he says that Rasulullah said every child is in pledge for his aqiqah which should be slaughtered on his behalf on the seventh day and he should be shaved and given a name. So the aqiqah cannot be done before seven days. Okay, It should be done preferably on the seventh day or after the seventh day. On the seventh day or after the seventh day. Aisha radiallahu anha says if you can't do it on the seventh, do it on the 14th or do it on the 21st. Alright, that's the best, is to do it within that same equation. But any time after the seventh day is fine. 
Alright? There are no specific portions according to the majority in the aqidah the way there are in Uthiyah. So it's not like you have to designate one third for charity, one third for, uh, as a gift and one third for yourself. They say there is no specific portions in aqidah for the most part. Some of the scholars said just out of qiyas, it's good to follow that same equation though anyway. Make sure, in essence, make sure that there's a portion of your aqidah that goes to sadaqah. Alright, make sure that there's a portion that goes to sadaqah or give something um, in sadaqah um, as a result. Uh, can you just give charity instead of doing aqiqah? Can you just give charity and just call it a day? What do you guys think? No. Okay. So the aqiqah still can take place, but you can you can have someone else do the slaughter for you. So in any country, whatever it is, if you want to appoint someone to do the aqiqah for you, that's fine. All right. Yeah, so you can feed people from the apika, you can give it in charity, you can do those types of things. It's fine. So you can designate the portions as you want. Obviously, make a share of it as sadaqah, no matter what. Right? Um, oh, that's my next topic. Why is it two sheeps for a boy and one for a girl? And by the way, two sheeps for a boy, one for a girl. There are camels, cows, goats, this is all allowed. Okay? Camels, cows, and goats. I know some people like to do goats. Um, so it can be two sheep for a boy. It should be two sheep for a boy, one for a girl. And you can give extra, so it's not like you're limited to that. So you can slaughter it more. All right? Don't be stingy if you're having apika, you know, and you got a bunch of people coming. Don't just slaughter one sheep. Do your best to accommodate. You know? <laughs> but you can do more as extra. Okay. Now, what's the difference? Why two for a boy and one for a girl? Most of the ulama, their reasoning for that, they said that it's the share of inheritance of the son and the daughter. So as simple as that. The share of the son is twice as much as the daughter. Has nothing to do with gender because the mother and the father, you guys inherit you, you guys attended hopefully the inheritance lecture last night. Mother and father, what's their share? One sixth and one sixth, right? They both get the same share. It has nothing to do with gender. Um, but the boy, the assumption here with the two and the one is that the boy is going to be the one that's going to have to provide for the family. If it's not that way, then the equation does not apply then the girl is given more to, to accommodate and things of that sort. So this, And by the way, Islam was the first religion to assign inheritance to women, period. The Bible does not assign any inheritance to women. All right? No religion before Islam ever assigned inheritance to women. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave that to the woman, and the woman does not have to spend on her family from that. It's just for her. Whereas the man is mandated to spend okay, upon, upon the women of the household. Again, if the equation changes then it's taken into account. But the aqiqah, some of this, most of the scholars, they said it's the same way as the inheritance. Two for, two for the son, one for the daughter. And interesting fact, and subhanAllah, this is just, I'm, I noticed this um, also. Rasulullah um, Sallallahu when he slaughtered for al-Hasan wal Hussein, he only slaughtered one for each. Perhaps some of the ulama said that the Prophet Sallallahu doesn't, you don't inherit from the Prophet Sallallahu Right? The inheritance, the inheritance of the prophets all goes to sadaqah. Rasulullah only slaughtered one for al-Hasan and al-Hussein each, and that's, all, that's an authentic tradition. Okay? So it's, it has to do with inheritance. Um, another thing about the aqiqah, it cannot be shared according to Imam Malik and Imam Ahmad, according to Abu Hanifa and some of the Shafiris. You can share it, but it's better not to if you can afford not to. Meaning, if you can afford, you know, each one does his own. So meaning if there's more than one person that, that had a child, they shouldn't share the aqiqah. But if there are financial constrictions, things of that sort, obviously it's sunnah mu'akkadah to them anyway, to those scholars anyway, to Imam Hanifa, Imam al-Shafi'i. So it's sunnah mu'akkadah to them anyway. So it's a sunnah, so there's some flexibility 
um, with the sunnah. But again, only if you can't afford it, it's better uh, to do it for yourself. Whenever you slaughter, you say, Bismillah, Allahumma hadha minka walak. In the name of Allah, oh Allah, this is from you and for you. Hadihi aqiqatu fulan. This is the aqiqah of so and so. So you'd mention the name of the child. That's just the sunnah. The only requirement for the aqiqah to be valid is the intention. Okay? The intention is there, it counts as aqiqah. So you don't have to like call up like a charity organization and say, I donated this aqiqah. Are you sure you slaughtered in the proper name? Like the intention has to be there, even if the name is not mentioned. Okay, the intention has to be there. Also, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala, also the animal should be free from defects. So just like the Uthiyah, the animal should not have defects, obvious defects. Um, that's going to be sacrificed. And it's recommended to be of age, six months and older. Okay, it's just like the Uthiyah. Again, out of Qiyas, out of analogy. The same restrictions of the Uthiyah, it's better to apply them uh, to the Aqiqah. Um, also, Aisha radiallahu anha said that the Aqiqah should be Jududan, which means the bone should not be broken on the Aqiqah, on the animal that's been slaughtered. Only the joints would be broken. So you would serve it in a way, and there's no reasoning, it's just to follow the sunnah. Aisha radiallahu anha said that when the Prophet did the aqiqah, he didn't break the bones of the animal, just from the joints. So people would take from the meat, but they would not break the bones themselves. Okay. She also says, radiallahu anha, that in the days of jahiliyyah, when people would slaughter an animal, on the, and the reason why I'm mentioning this hadith is because some people do this custom, and it's from the days of Jahiliyyah, said when people would slaughter an animal on behalf of the newborn baby, they'd take a piece of cotton and take the blood of that animal and they'd rub the baby's head with it after shaving it. This is still done in some Muslim countries, unfortunately. Now, Aisha, it's disgusting too, right? I heard someone say, ew. All right? <laughs> Aisha said it's a practice of Jahiliyyah. Okay, so there's no rubbing the head with blood. That's disgusting. Okay. Another ruling here is... Um, can it be combined with the Uthiyah? So for example, it's Eid al-Adha, you have to slaughter an animal anyway. Can you combine the intention of Aqiqah with Uthiyah? Um, according to Imam Ahmad and Imam Muhanifa, yes, and also Imam Hassan al-Basri, they said because the intention of the Uthiyah and the Aqiqah is the same, it's to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it's to sacrifice on behalf of the family. According to the Malikis and the Shafi'is, it has to be separate. Another ruling on the Aqiqah, it is best to make your aqiqah open to the public. Because Rasulullah said, the worst, and this is in Sahih Muslim, the worst food is the food of the walima to which the rich are invited to the exclusion of the poor. Okay? You should not make your aqiqah specific. It's good to just serve it, for example, in a masjid or in an open gathering. Don't exclude people from the aqiqah that devoids it barakah, that devoids the feast of barakah, even weddings, by the way. You don't just invite people that you think are going to pay up. <laughs> you open your wedding as much as you can. Funny thing about that, I made my wedding open to people. Had it announced on, in the khutbahs and stuff like that. And even with that, some people were really offended. They said, I thought we'd get a personal invitation. <laughs> said, Come on, guys. I came back from Hajj five days before my wedding. <laughs> Alright. Shaving the head and giving the charity. Giving the sadaqah of that. Shaving the head of the boy is sunnah by consensus. Sunnah in accordance with all the schools. It's sunnah to shave the head of the boy. Also on the seventh day is most preferable. Okay, but it can be any time after the seventh day. It doesn't have to be the seventh day. For the girl, um, according to 
the majority, it's also sunnah to shave the head of the girl. According to Imam Ahmed rahimahullah, and this is the opinion I, I follow uh, personally, um, that there is no authentic hadith about shaving the head of the girl. He said that the only hadith, which is that Fatima radiallahu anha, uh, shaved the head of Umm Kulthum and Zainab is a weak hadith, it's mursal. Um, and actually some of the Malikis acted in accordance with that because Imam Malik narrated that hadith so some of like, the later scholars of the Maliki school they acted in accordance with that. They said Imam Malik gave that ruling on the basis of that hadith. So like Ibn Abdul Bar and others, they said also the girl's head is not to be shaved. Because um, Imam Ahmed rahimahullah said the us of the default ruling is that the woman's hair is not to be cut short or shaved. And so there's nothing to say otherwise. There's no authentic narration to say otherwise. So Imam Ahmed personally did not like, he actually considered it makru, dislike to shave a girl's head. The later Hanbali said it's mubah, it's, it's permissible to shave the girl's head. But it's not like shaving the head of the boy. That's what the later scholars of the Hanbali school said, and that's probably, that's the most balanced opinion. Okay, that you know what, it's, you can, if you want to, especially I know like, you know, a lot of people say if you shave and the roots grow stronger, things of that sort, you can, but it's not like shaving the head of the boy. Um, whenever you do shave the head, what should you do with the hair? Give its, give its weight in charity in silver. Give its weight in silver in charity. Now, does that mean you actually have to take the hair, put it into a scale, weigh it, and then try to see what the silver rate is and give it away? No. You can just give, it's, it's literally like two, three dollars of charity, sadaqa. It's symbolic in its nature. You don't have to sit there and weigh anything. Okay, but you should give some sadaqa, some charity as a result. Okay, you don't actually have to weigh the hair. Alright, it's just a small price of charity. It's a sign of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah said in Sahih Muslim, you start with the right, you finish with the left. Okay, if you're shaving the head of the child, you start with the right, you finish with the left. And you would just say Bismillah before you start. A barber can also do it if you don't want to do it. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with a bar barber doing it. Read it upon them. Alright, and he, and you know, even making the athkar al okay, al sabah wal masat, making the, the morning and evening remembrances, reading them on your children. Okay? Until, as the scholars say, until they're old enough to learn and recite them for themselves. So until your kids, even when they're young babies, until they're, until they're old enough to where they can repeat, all right, and they can start to read for themselves and read those du'a for themselves. You should make that du'a only. You should read the last three qurs and you should read the morning and evening remembrances. But especially the last three qurs, morning and night. Every time you put your kid to sleep, rub your hand over them. Read those three surahs over them because it's a means of protection. Uh, Rasulullah also used to teach us to, uh, to say upon our infants and upon our children, وَعِذُكُمَا بِكَلِمَاتِ اللَّهِ التَّامَاتِ مِنْ كُلِّ شَيْطَانٍ وَهَامَةٍ وَمِنْ كُلِّ عَيْنٍ لَامَةٍ That I seek, the same way the mother of Maryam made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that I seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the shaytan. وَعِذُكُمَا uh, You in particular, so you're making dua for the child. From the shaytan and from every evil eye and, harm, and, and one who wishes harm on you. So reading that dua, again, fortress of the Muslim dua that you make for your children, just look it up. Alright, the topic of urine also comes up. Is urine najis or is it not najis? Is urine najis for the child? The boy and the girl, najis means impure. The boy and the girl, the najis is impure. But Rasulullah made an exception for the boy's urine that you don't have to change the cloth. 
you can just sprinkle it, sprinkle water on the area that the urine came on. Why? Because the boy's urine is a lot more wild and it goes a lot more places than a girl's urine does. So it was a concession, in, but the, the condition for that is that the boy has to be unweaned. He has to be breastfeeding and the only thing he's getting is milk. Once the boy starts eating anything other than milk, that concession is lifted. But it was to make it easy. Again, in that khutbah, that awesome khutbah that I was telling you about that I heard in the Middle East, the scholar was saying that from the fadail, from the virtues of men over women, is that their urine is not <laughs> impure. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, so it's because, you know, obviously a boy will reach many more places and a boy's more wild. And I've had this confirmed by mommies, mommies like you, who have confirmed to me that boy's urine is a lot worse than girls' urine in terms of where it goes and stuff like that. So Rasulullah, it's still najis, the hukum hasn't changed, but Rasulullah said you could simply sprinkle water on the area. You don't have to sit there and try to find every place that the urine touched and things of that sort. Alright? Now, uh, in the last 20 minutes, inshallah, we're doing good on time actually, and then we'll do Q&A after Asr. Uh, the topic of breastfeeding. Alright, Rasulullah mentioned, in you know the hadith where Rasulullah mentioned that the angels took him and he saw some of the punishments of the people. Amongst the people that he saw punished were women who denied their children milk, breast milk. Those who denied their children. Okay, So it's haram to deny your children from that. Okay? Even if you don't feel like it, it's haram to deny your children that, that right. That's one of their rights upon you. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَحَمْلُهُ وَفِصَالُهُ ثَلَاثُونَ شَحَرًا That uh, the carrying of the child and the breastfeeding term is 30 months. And subhanAllah, there's a big rahmah in that because there is... A woman at the time, Uthman that had a child at six months. And some of the people assumed that she committed adultery. You know, she got married, you know, and she had, how do you have a child in six months? So Ali radiallahu anhu, he made the excuse for her. He said, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, that his carrying and his uh, breastfeeding term, the child's breastfeeding term is two years. Okay, so two years is 24 months, and six months is how long the baby has to be inside. So in essence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving a minimum, you know, a baby typically will not survive if it is born with under six months. So that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. Okay, so the breastfeeding term is two years. The breastfeeding, but I'll explain that in a moment before you guys get um, a little upset about that. All right, uh, just, just for the hukum on breastfeeding also, breastfeeding within two years within the first two years, on five separate occasions, establishes the relationship. In the sense that if, if a child is adopted, for example, and they're under two years old and they're breastfed more than five times, or if you breastfeed your niece or your nephew or whatever it is, then you become the mother um, and your husband becomes the father for all, you know, uh, in terms of all legal uh, rulings and things of that sort. So you become mahram in that way. The husband becomes mahram and things of that sort. So it actually has legal implications there. So it's not good for people to just be breastfeeding right and left. Right. Uh, five times breastfeeding within two years, within the first two years, makes the child the son or the daughter of that woman. Okay, um, It's a right of the baby upon the mother, as we said. It's permissible for anyone to breastfeed. Muslim, non-Muslim. It's permissible for anyone to provide that breast milk to breastfeed. But the Sahaba hated that an unrighteous woman would breastfeed their children. So even like when they had wet nurses, if they weren't able to provide, they'd look for a woman of righteousness. Even though there is no legal implication there. Alright, but they'd look for a woman of righteousness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the breastfeeding term in Surah Al-Baqarah as two years also. But what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? Iman arada. 
whoever wants to complete the term of ridah, complete the term of breastfeeding. All right. What does that mean? We, breastfeeding is a right of the child upon the mother for two years. And if the mother cannot provide, if the mother is not able to provide breast milk, the scholar said it, it's the right of the child upon the father to hire a, a, a nurse who can nurse the child. So it's an absolute right of the child um, for those two years. Um, and by the way, the World Health Organization, this is amazing, the World Health Organization, in their report that was released in 2011, they said that the, that, the, that the optimal time to breastfeed a child is two years. You didn't quote the Quran or anything like that. This is the best amount of time, the best term to breastfeed your child for is two years. Now, within those two years, does it have to be exclusively breast milk? No. Okay. So the ulama said you can start to wean the child off by mutual consent after six months. Some said after eight months. The point is that you can start to give them solids. The point is you're giving them their nutrition, you're developing them, and you're not you're not forbidding them from that breast milk. Okay, so you can start to wean them off. It doesn't have to be an exclusive breastfeeding diet. It doesn't have to only be that for those two years. All right, but it is certainly healthy for the child. It's good for the child. Medical research has shown that. And by the way, many, many, many children die every single year. Last year's report, I read this online from the World Health Organization. Last year, 46,000 babies died because they didn't, because they used formula instead of breast milk. There's something that just cannot replace what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put, you know, for the child. Now, if you have to use formula, you know, and those types of things, that's a different story. But to just opt for formula, you should try your absolute best to nurse the child. Okay? You should try to exert every effort to nurse the child. It has been shown formula does not give the child what breast milk gives the child. It's as simple as that. Okay? Um, and can breastfeeding be done more than two years for the child? Can it be done more than two years for the child? Yes. Okay? It can be. Um, in fact, you know, I've, I've heard from, uh, I always ask my, you know, my parents mentioned this to me that, uh, some of the smaller villages in Palestine, for example, some of them breastfeed their ch their children, you know, till four or five years. <laughs> Subhanallah. And uh, my dad's very was very embarrassed about how long when I found out how long he was breastfeeding. But you know what I'm like? You know what? My dad's a genius. So, Mashallah, Tabarakallah. Super. He's just a genius in everything. Like I, I consider him an all around the alam. If you mention anything to him, he has like, why do you know this? You know, why do you know about this topic? Right? Mashallah. You know, because there's really something special about the quality of the milk that the mother has uh, for the child. All right. Uh, again, fasting. You can fast. Rasulullah gave you an excuse not to fast. But here in breastfeeding, it's different than with the pregnancy. If you're still able to provide a healthy supply of milk and you can fast, and it's not exhausting, it's not causing over fatigue, then you still sh you should fast. So you can really alternate the days here two days a week, whatever it is, three days a week even. You can even make up what you missed during your pregnancy. Alright, the last last topic here is nifas, postnatal bleeding. Okay. So the woman during her postnatal bleeding in her postnatal period is excused from prayer and fasting. Okay. Again, she should make up fasting at her own pace. She cannot fast at this time. It's not, that, not like uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding where she has the option. She cannot fast at this time. And in essence, with the nifas, okay. And by the way, there's a, a huge rahmah in this, you know. Um, 
what they call postnatal depression, postnatal blues and that kind of stuff. It really does exist. It's scientific. Brothers, we should know this. Women are just depressed when they have children. Okay? It's scientific. They're depressed for, for some time after they have the child. It's, it's subhanAllah. Uh, it's real. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it easy for them from excusing them from prayer and from fasting in that regard. Still, you can still make dua. You can still read Quran. Okay? You still are able to pray in terms of supplication and invocation, read Quran and things of that sort. The only thing, of course, is that you're excused from the five daily prayers. There are three stages of nifas, or that are discussed within the realm of nifas. Before deliver, delivery, during delivery, and after delivery. Okay? Um, the Shafi'is consider only the bleeding that comes out after delivery as nifas, as postnatal blood. Alright? The Hanafis and the Malikis consider the bleeding that comes out during and after delivery as part of the nifas. So during the delivery also as part of the nifas and after the delivery. Alright? And some of the, some of the scholars from the Hanbali school considered the bleeding that would take place a few days even before the delivery. Um, and so they said up to three days before as part of nifas. Okay? According to the Jumhur, the majority, any blood that comes out before the delivery for sure is not nifas. Any blood that comes out before the delivery is not part of nifas. Alright, so it's post the postnatal period after you've delivered. Now, how long is the nifas? How long is the nifas? I already mentioned it, didn't I? Forty days. This is important to know. What if you're bleeding more than forty days? What do you do? Forty-two days, forty-three days. What do you do? Are you, do you stay not fasting and praying, or do you start praying and fasting? Okay. Now, according to Imam Ahmad and Imam Abu Hanifa, and this is the most correct opinion, Allah Taala Alam, in terms of the, the narrations. We have, we have a shortage of time, so I can't really go into um, detail. Uh, anything after 40 days is istihada, it's just other blood. So 40 days is the maximum period of your nifas. Okay, it's the maximum period of your nifas. The only way that it wouldn't be considered the maximum period of your nifas is if it coincides with the height, if it coincides with your regular scheduled period, okay, menstrual cycle, then you would consider it that. You do your best judgment. Okay, and this was also the opinion of Abdullah Mubarak, um, Ishaq, Sufyan al-Thawri, At-Tirmidhi, others. Um, and there's a very, uh, you know, clear hadith in that regard. Abu Dawood narrates um, from uh, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha that we used to not regard the discharge, brownish and yellowish discharge after the tuhur, after the end of the period, as being of any significance. So it was just considered istihad, it was just considered other blood. Alright? So 40 days is how long the nifas lasts, no matter what. Alright? Inshallah ta'ala, with that, I hope, did you guys find this beneficial? Learned, inshallah? Okay, alhamdulillah, bro. I mean, I hope, I asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make this beneficial. Uh, before I go to Salat al-Asr and Q&A, um, those of you who are attending online and those of you who are also here, um, a few things. Number one, if you notice, this was a free class. Alhamdulillah, we made it free. We have over a thousand, we have 1,300 viewers online. Alhamdulillah, we have many viewers online. Usually for a day seminar, you know, it would be $20, $30, $10, whatever it is. We wanted to make this free and open, and we're just counting on everyone, inshallah ta'ala, to support this organization to support Islamic Learning Foundation of Texas so that we can continue to have these programs. So I encourage everyone to inshallah ta'ala donate whatever you can, whatever the value of the seminar you got, you know, or you felt is. If you want to donate something, it would be very appreciated. Again, I'm counting on everyone to do with your part 
We just wanted to make this open. I was like, you know what? Let's just make it free, inshallah. And let's just, there's more barakah in it. There's so many couples and things of that sort that are in need of this. So inshallah, support the organization so we can continue to have these programs. The link is also at the YouTube stream. So you can share this with everyone. Do me a favor. Honestly, this is a favor to me because I, I, I hope there's some benefit in this. And I know a lot of people are ignorant about these types of matters. Not, not you know, um, not out of malice or not intentionally, but just don't know about these things. So please share this with as many people as you can, inshallah. And also, um, I'm going to have a class that's starting online on February 12th, inshallah, every Tuesday. It's going to be a four-week class on the tafsir of Surah Al-Ahqaf. Um, it's going to be February 12th at 8 p.m. Starting February 12th at 8 p.m. every Tuesday night, inshallah, at www.inflix.com, I-L-M-F-L-I-X, or ilftexas.org. Both of them go to the same uh, website. Um, also, uh, for those of you that are in Houston, uh, there's going to be a class. You can find more information about some of the classes in Houston. Um, there's one on March 9th called The Station of the Divine. I believe that's on Madaraj Salikin by Dr. Ovamir Anjam. On March 16th, here in Dallas, inshallah, we're going to have a class on, called Marked for Greatness. Marked for Greatness, how many of you guys attended the first Tafsir Sunnah Maryam I did? Not many of you. If you subscribe online to on, for an Amflix membership, which is $10 a month, you get access to all the previous classes. So I did the Tafsir of the first 40 ayahs of Surah Maryam, and I'm doing the next 25, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, which talks about marked for greatness, the characteristics of the Anbiya and the Prophet. So that'll be somewhere in Dallas. Do we determine the location? Richardson. At Richardson. Okay, it'll be in Richardson, inshallah. That's good for me. I don't have to go anywhere. All right, in Richardson, inshallah, March 16th. Just keep up, inshallah ta'ala, uh, for more information. Um, and there's a lot of content, alhamdulillah. Again, we want to open this up to the public. We want people to benefit as much as possible. And we want to be able to keep these projects going. So please, inshallah ta'ala, follow, follow us, inshallah on uh, online, on Facebook, follow the organization, ILF Facebook page, you know, keep up with classes, inshallah. And hopefully, by the way, Sheikh Nadim, you know, how this all came about, I was, we were at an Imam's meeting, and I saw Imam Nadim, what was that, on Tuesday? On Tuesday. So I was like, I was telling Imam Nadim, I was like, you know, I'm in town this weekend, how about we do a class on, you know, pregnancy and newborns and stuff like that. And I knew Epic is the place. Because, mashallah, the sisters here, mashallah, very active. You have a reputation. So keep up that reputation, inshallah. So, alhamdulillah, I really want to thank you all for the turnout online. You know, it's only three days of advertising, alhamdulillah. Over a thousand people benefited from this class, inshallah. So, jazakumullah khayra. Those of you who are online, keep in touch, keep online, inshallah, after Salat al-Asr, which is in 15 minutes, inshallah. Asr is in 10 minutes. After Salat al-Asr, we'll be doing an open Q&A, inshallah. So we're not done yet. I just wanted to mention those things for those that have to go after Salat al-Asr or those that are logging up now. So Jazakumullah Khair, we'll go ahead and we'll take a break. Is there something? Yes. Should we take questions now? Sure. One question, inshallah, and then we'll take a break, inshallah. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Underwater delivery, water, it's all permissible. There's nothing to prohibit it. Anything that soothes the, the woman is fine. It's nothing wrong with it. Because al-asl al-ashya'a everything's permissible unless it's proven to be impermissible. So, inshallah, we'll come back, we'll take questions. Please stay, inshallah. After Salat al-Asr, ask your questions. Jazakumullah khayran to all of you for attending, though. Barakallah khayran, subhanahu wa rahmatullahi wa
السلام عليكم ورحمة 
Assalamu alaikum. First of all, Jazakum Akhir for those who have come. And also from my side, on behalf of the entire Epic management, I want to say Jazakum Akhir to Sheikh Omar Suleiman and ILF for bringing the program here. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward all of you, inshallah. As mentioned earlier and announced prior to Salat, the Q&A session will take place right now, inshallah. So I request all the graduates again, just go back to the same setting. Uh, and uh, for the sisters, inshallah, just wait uh, for uh, a knock on the door or something until inshallah before we start. Jazakumullah khair, assalamu alaikum. Most of the questions we get here will cover what people are going to ask them right now. Sorry. Let's just move this up away and then we can just look at the So, sister can start coming with So, Jazakallah khair everyone for joining this event. Just wanted to give a few words about ILF. Uh, so, ILF, uh, you probably uh, know or respond to everybody, that ILF is a project of ICNA, Islamic Circle of North America. 
So just like we have other projects like Y Islam or Ikna Relief, uh, this is an educational project to educate community inshallah. And the goal of uh, ILF is to fuse knowledge with service. So inshallah most of the uh, uh, programs that we provide, they have some practical aspect as you can see on this one. And you know that can lead to some action that we can do for the betterment of society. So there are basically two kinds of classes we do. Uh, Number one is on-site classes, uh, just like one of the, just like the one that we are attending here. Mostly they are one-day classes, six hours. Um, so we did one in Irving Masjid, uh, Surya Maryam, Surah Maryam Part One. Uh, very blessing, and inshallah we'll be doing Part Two on March 16th uh, in uh, Richardson Masjid. Uh, so we did about six, seven seminars already, and these seminars are already uploaded to our Inflex uh, portal. That is a monthly subscription, so you can pay $10 and all the seminars that are done are recorded there uh, and then you can access them anytime. The second part of the, uh, you know, the educational method is uh, online classes. So we uh, try to do every month we do one class, uh, it's a four weeks class online. Alhamdulillah, we have, had, we have you know, had about 600 to 500 sometime attendees. And so we do, we do it on different uh, thematic uh, topics. So one of them is Sheikh is doing is uh, is doing tafasir of different surahs. So he did uh, Surah Mulk, uh, Surah Hijrat, uh, Surah Kaf is coming inshallah on February 13th. Uh, and then he also did about Bani Israel, the Chronicles of Bani Israel. So about six seven topics we have already done, and we have some more scholars coming and joining the ILF as instructors. Is one of them is Sheikh Yasser Bridges. Inshallah, he will have class in April. And uh, similarly, Dr. Oemir Anjum, who is in political science and Islamic political thought, he will be doing another class in Houston on March 9th. So and he will be doing online classes also. And another uh, instructor is Imam Khalid Briggs. So he has experience in um, uh, you know African American history, and he did a class on Malcolm X. So I'll encourage all of you to go to ilftexas.com, uh, you know, know about uh, our projects, our classes, and if you can uh, subscribe to Inflix also, Inflix subscription. So you can go through inflix.com or ilftexas.com and uh, subscribe to it and get access to the content, inshallah, that is available. Jazakallah khair again. So we'll have a Q&A session, uh, Sheikh uh, Mahmoud Suleiman and Sheikh Hadeem will be answering questions. I'm also, I just wanted to thank also the Masjid and Imam Nadeem for the response and for giving us the, the use of the Masjid and the facility. Alhamdulillah. I haven't known Imam Nadeem for too long, but Alhamdulillah, I'm very fond of him. I love him for the sake of Allah. Inshallah. Hopefully we'll be doing some things together also. You'll be seeing us doing some things together, inshallah, in the area. So, Jazakallah khair, Shaykh, and Jazakallah khair to the Masjid. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your community, mashallah, is growing and it's vibrant, alhamdulillah. It's, um, you know, establishing itself as a very active and vibrant community. So, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to put in your community to allow it to become a center of activity, inshallah. So, do we have questions? Uh, written questions? Assalamu alaikum. Um, the one question that has come is that 
what are the rules of making of fasting for women who have consecutive pregnancy and breastfeeding for several years. Um, generally what you would do is that uh, you would collect all the days that you have missed out and as time goes on whenever you do have the chance uh, then you inshallah you will take care of your fasting one day at a time inshallah. That is um, it's based on your own convenience and there is not a set rule that you have to do it at, at a particular time of the year. You could do it at any time of the year based on your convenience. Uh, the second question which is in our culture, women change their last name after marriage. Is it okay or permissible? No, it's not. Um, in fact, let me mention this. SubhanAllah, and it just shows you that we see things through the lens of our culture. Um, I was once doing the lecture on women in Islam at a university. And there was a, you know, a non-Muslim woman that was sitting there. And she said, how come in your religion women are just property? I was like, ma'am, can I ask you a question? So said, yes, sir, are you married? So I was like, yeah. She was like, so what's your last name? She said her last name. I was like, what's your real last name? She's like, what are you talking about? That's my last name. So, was that your last name before marriage? So she said, uh, no. Obviously, I changed it when I got married. I said, in Islam, it's haram. It's from, prohibited for a woman to change her name because she's not the property of the man. Why would you change your last name when you get married? Now, we don't think about that in our culture because we, you know, we don't see, I'm not saying it is chauvinistic per se because I'm an American too. I grew up in this country. I never thought anything of it. But that's the point. That some, sometimes we see rulings or we see things that are different in our deen. And it's not meant to disrespect the woman and things of that sort. But we might see it as such because our culture, uh, we naturally have a bias. We naturally have a cultural bias. But Allah Azza makes it to be called by the names of your families. It is a must. So no, a woman cannot be called by the name of her husband. Can you talk about the middle name of babies, last middle name? Does father's name get to the middle or last name of the baby? If father's name gets to be the middle name, what is the last name for the baby, according to Sharia? The only thing, the name of the father has to be somewhere there. So it's the, the, you know, the, usually, traditionally, what it would be is that um, you know, you could, you would be called by such and such, the daughter or son of so and so, and then the name of your tribe, which fits perfectly with the, with what we do here with three names, right? So the name of your family would be your last name. The name of uh, the father would be the middle name. Um, something really cool. Sheikh Walid Basuni has a son named uh, Khalid, so Khalid bin Ibn Walid, and he actually made the middle name Bin Walid, just Khalid ibn Walid. So, yeah. So, yeah, do, you know, try to do that follow system, inshallah. Uh, these are the questions. I'm going to try to read the question. I'm very bad sometimes reading people's handwriting. Um, <clears throat> during the delivery, are we supposed to make, I think, so it may be Fajr or Farth prayer, um, if there is no indication of the baby coming? Uh, generally, as you know, that um, the uh, Islam is very easy, of course, as the Prophet says, Salat is something that cannot be skipped out, so the fuqaha have given permission that if it is difficult for you to get off your bed and perform the Salat, you can perform the Salat uh, on your bed also, if, it's, if it is difficult. So do keep that in mind. Um, if you look at overall our religion, when it comes to fasting, when it comes to Salat, it actually looks after the health of the person. Even when it comes to fasting, if there is any, um, if your life, 
uh, is in jeopardy or you're, you know that your health can deteriorate if you will fast, if, uh, Islam has given the permission that you don't have to fast. So even in Salat, when it comes to Salat, the, if you look at the, the, if you just say the fifth of Salat, you, you will learn that if you cannot perform Salat standing up, you have the permission to sit down on a chair. If you cannot do it on the chair, if you have to do it on the bed, I mean, hey, you know, you do it on the bed. If you have to do, and not only that, but there are chapters in the books of fiqh in terms of salat is as salatu bil iman, which is you praying salat with ishara. Uh, so this is also allowed. What are the du'as to recite for young couples who are planning to have children? We can also go through some of the du'as. Zakariya alayhi salam made, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Rabbi habdi min as-salihin, Allah grant me from the righteous, so on and so forth. So you can make du'as from the Qur'an and things of that sort, but that's the best one for sure. Um, when couples have issues having children after marriage, up to what limits they can consult Islamically? Um, I'm a little confused by the question because the first part of the question, we're having trouble having kids, and then the second part, there's a limit. Again, the only thing the shut-out pro prohibits you from is permanent birth control and trying to not have any kids whatsoever. So if you want to have one, two, that's fine. But the only thing is not having children whatsoever. Oh, infertility treatment is fine as long as the men's, and that's a good question actually, I should have covered it in the seminar, I thought about that. As long as the husband's eggs are being used, or the husband is being used in that, as long as it's not a non-mahram or so on and so forth, as long as it's still halal, that treatment, fertility treatment is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's halal, as long as, again, it's not anyone other than the husband being used. There's a question that has come, um, can we have, can we use birth control if we plan to perform Hajj? Once again, as mentioned in the seminar, that even the Sahaba, they would not actually, they would not cut it out of the picture completely of having children, but they would, um, they would delay it for some reason. Uh, in the same way, if you know that you may be going for Hajj and this could become a hindrance, then after that, um, it could be used, but once again, as uh, the Sheikh mentioned earlier, it has to be consensus um, between the both husband and wife, and there should be a mutual understanding between the spouses about this. Okay, before four months, can we have an abortion if we're told the child's going to be deficient? If it's, if it's a deformity, yes, if it's something that the child is going to seriously have a serious disorder and things of that sort and might not even survive. So I mean, look, again, as I said, with these things you want to consult on it. I'm not telling you this so that when you're faced with a situation, especially with something as critical as this, that you just make up your, your own decision. No, you go and you ask the Imam, you go and you ask a scholar, a qualified scholar, to see that you qualify, to make sure that you qualify. So the general answer is yes, but as far as the, the severity of that, then you need to consult someone who's knowledgeable, who will in turn talk to someone who's knowledgeable in, in the field of medicine and see you know, what the severity is. Then. 
aqiqa for an older person, does it require to shave the head? No. Aqiqa and shaving the head are two separate things. So you don't have to shave your head when you do aqiqa. Aqiqa is the, slot, is the animal slot. It's not the shaving the head. So you're just shaving the head of the kids. Okay? I think that's, that's it. Okay, so again, um, let me go a little bit deeper into the question now. There's a difference between what's permissible and what is the best thing to do in that regard. Raising handicapped children or special education or special needs children is very praiseworthy. There's a lot of edge on that. So I'm not saying that you have to or you should. But as far as permissibility is concerned, if it's severe enough to where the child will not be able to function properly, okay, and that's a loose term because the Sharia doesn't specify things where they should not be specified, where it should be case by case. Well, there's, there was no abortion in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu so obviously this is fiqh, this is fiqh, uh, contemporary fiqh, this is contemporary fiqh, as Imam Nadim just said too often. So I mean, obviously with new situations, that's why you have fuqahat, they use the traditions to try to come up with these answers. So the dalil is what the Prophet Sallallahu said about the, the, the ruh not being in yet. So therefore, the scholars in general, they, they used to treat it before the ruh is in it in a, in a different way than it would be treated when the ruh is uh, not inside. So that's what it is. So it's just contemporary fiqh, what the fuqaha have said. I th- what, I, what I particularly, I would, I would recommend to read some of the, the uh, articles of, I mentioned Sheikh Hatim al-Hajj, is my teacher. MashaAllah, he's, very rarely do you find someone who's qualified in his field and qualified in Islamic law. He's a pediatrician. Very skilled doctor, was one of Mayo Clinic's doctors. Um, and he's also a PhD in Sharia. He's a qualified Fatih and Mufti. So he's written a lot on these topics. Um, and his PhD actually was on, you know, med- medical ethics and Fatih. Uh, so you can just search Hatim and Hajj. He actually, he actually has a website, drhatimandhajj.com, where he writes a lot of articles and things of that sort. Hatim, H, H, A, T, E, M, E, L, H, A, J, dot com. Okay. And he writes some articles on this. We have a brother too, so he's got brother, sister, brother, sister. Yes, brother. Where did Rasulullah come up with the names of his daughters? That's a good question. I, I don't know. They're all before Wahiba. But I don't Sure. Do you have any idea about that? I have no clue. It's a good question, though. I'll research it, inshallah. Um, the sister, I think she had the question first. Um, oh, God. Can I answer So, all the, the blue eye, the blue eye to ward off hasad, nazar, eyeliner, the black stuff, not only is that bid'ah, but it's borderlining. Uh, shirk, minor forms of shirk, okay, because consulting a magician, horoscope, and those types of things, these are haram, 
this can actually lead to your salah being invalid and things of that sort to void. So, no, and there's no proof for putting eyes of the Quran on the child. So you don't put any eyes. In. You teach your kid Quran and read Quran on your kids, but putting an eye is not going to do anything on them. Right, so reading and writing, okay, but putting like chains and those types of things, there's no basis for that. No eyeliner. If you want them to look cute, you want to put eyeliner, that's fine. But. I mean, I think um, I, and the sister was asking the question, I mean, um, I'm quite aware of the culture um, that's generally where we come from. And so the best thing is that, as the chef mentioned, reading the Quran. This is what the Prophet he did, and this is the best form of this is the best route to go with. So, selling breast milk. Now, paying a wet nurse is fine. So, on the, the the issue here, the issue of consumption is you have to know where the milk is coming from. You have to be very clear and aware, and it's still it would establish. So, for example, the scholar said the five occasions that make a person mahram. Even if they're not sucking directly from the breast, if there's, they're taking the milk, but it's still sessions of milk, so it still establishes the the relationship. <laughs> the wet nurse is a bit. It's not about rights as much as it's about uh, aura. That there is no aura. That there is well, there is aura, obviously, but the mahra. Uh, he's become a total mahram to her, and she doesn't wear hijab. She doesn't have to wear hijab in front of in front of him. And for all practical purposes, she's like a mother to him. Now, Rasulullah treated uh, when he saw his former wet nurses. He treated them, you know, like his mother. He He treated them with the, with the best honor and things of that sort. So you can derive from that. Obviously, they have you owe them. They have rights upon you, but. Do they have the rights that your actual mother would have on you? No. But you want to add on to that? No, I mean, um, even one time there is mentioned that Al-Halima uh, Sa'diya, when she came, when one time she did come, and the Prophet when he saw her coming, he actually told the Sahaba that move, and he, he laid down a sheet, and he actually gave reference to Halima Sa'diya as his own mother also. So, because um, what they go through in taking care of a child, Yes, and also Umayyad and also. Yeah, I think it's five past five now. There's one few more questions. Yes, sister, go. Yeah. Um, I wanted to contribute that those chromosomal disorder tests are typically at 12 weeks and 21 weeks. Um, my question, I'm not familiar with the practice of no PM. Um, is that just as simply as when I'm making my morning and afternoon ad card, my baby is with me? Or is there a specific, is there more to it? Okay, so reading the Rukia on your baby, basically, right? You can read Rukia on your baby. Um, is this the same question? No. Oh, okay, it's a different question. Reading Rukia on the baby, you would simply pass your hand over the baby as you read morning and evening remembrances. What do you mean pass your hand over the baby? 
demonstrate on the chair. Rub your hand on the arm, on the chest, on the face. Rub your hand over the baby. Compassionately. Not like, like you're trying to get a demon out, you know. Uh, we should take a brother now. Inshallah. Uh, you had your hand, yes. I honestly, I I don't know. That's something I have to ask a doctor. Like, is that considered as vomit or not? Yeah. Once once we we can determine what exactly it is, then I, we can put a ruling to that. But that's. I understand what you're saying, that has happened. What are the implications of genetic testing? I read about it. What does genetic testing do? I mean, there's any type of screening or testing that just shows disorders, things. I mean, it's, that's fine. Any type of testing is fine, yeah. Anything that's not going to harm, you know, the baby is fine. Yeah. I think we'll do two more questions. Oh, yeah, sure. Great question. Um, is adoption haram in Islam? No, it's good. Like it's, it's a sunnah that's being neglected in our community. It really is. Changing the name of the child is what's not allowed. Robbing the child of their identity is what's not allowed. Adoption is good. And it's, you know, that's what the Prophet referred to as the one who sponsors, raises an orphan. Is like this with me in paradise. Um, so I, I, I'm a big proponent of it, and I think as, as a community we need to start exploring avenues, especially with all the refugees that come and stuff like that. So what is the solution that if you, you get a child that's under two years old, um, yes, breastfeeding the child would make, so let's say it's a girl, if you breastfeed the girl that's under two years old five times, not only is she your daughter, your husband can see her without hijab even as an adult, she becomes his daughter too. And your sons would be her brothers. Okay? Likewise, a son, if you take a if you adopt a boy and you breastfeed the boy. And even if a woman is not naturally producing, so the Ridamat have said that even if she takes something to induce breast milk just to fulfill that purpose, that's fine. It's an honorable cause. So it should be done. But it can't it can't be done after two years. Um, we'll just take uh, one more, um, and I think um, the Sheikh can shed some light on this also. Um, this question actually is actually in reference to something that uh, the husband and wife have something, I mean, it's a, an issue where they're not agreeing upon, but the question is that if the wife is mentally and physically ready, but the husband is not ready, does not want a child, because he thinks, this is, and this is sometimes typical, uh, because his thinking, he thinks that his wife is not responsible 
and not good enough to be a mother. First of all, that's very wrong to think like that. That just shows that you don't have a lot of... Um, I'll skip that right now, actually. I mean, it, um, I don't want to actually, because I just, I didn't read the, the bottom part, but um, I'll respond to that separately. But um, when it comes to these kind of matters, there should be a mutual understanding between the husband and the wife, and they should try to work things out. Remember always that in a marriage, uh, this is something that I've talked about in my khutbahs also, a marriage is not a one-way street; it's a two-way street. There has to be, um, there should be, there should be mutual understanding in all our matters that we do. And this is what creates a healthy family. A lot of times, uh, unfortunately, from the cultures that we come from, the mentality is that the man says and the wife she has to do it regardless whether she likes it or not. It's a one-way street, and that's not what we see and what we learn from the from the from the Prophet You always saw that the Prophet He always took advice from his wives. He always, uh, you know, got engaged with his wives. And, you know, there was a mutual understanding of so many things. When the Prophet was in most dire need, the people who would come to give him advice were his wives. I mean, you look at the story of Hudaybiyah, when the Prophet did not know what to do, it was the wife of the Prophet um, that who came and gave advice, and that advice actually helped out very much um, for the Prophet So that's why in all family matters, there should be some, there should be mutual understanding, inshallah. So, having said that, if there is any more questions that you can ask, um, by the way, there are, like for example, the one question that brother did ask about the daughters of the Prophet Sallallahu um, Inshallah, um, I will be looking, I and Sheikh will look more into that. There was another question that came up earlier in the, after the first session, which is a very good question, um, that was asked uh, in regards to the, the baby and when the, the ruh or the soul comes in. Inshallah, we'll look into that more. But if there's any other questions that you have, then please do email them, inshallah, and they'll be answered. Jazakumullah khair. Jazakumullah khair for everyone to come. Assalamu in the future. In the in the future, yeah. You should know the source for sure. The name at the least of an identity that can be traced, a person that can be traced, you know, especially if it's enough where it's established. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the best way to do it. But even if it's anonymous, which is permissible, you just need to know where it is so you can trace that. So if I need that I can't.